You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies 2001 edition. Open the podcasting bay doors, Ben. I can't do that, Nathan. <laughs> what? <laughs> this conversation is pointless. Without the podcasting bay doors. I'm open. sorry, Nathan. Goodbye. That's really sad. I guess I have to do this podcast by myself. You should have picked someone who wasn't a robot <laughs> to podcast <laughs> yeah. with you. That is always my problem. What are you doing, Nathan? Podcasting. I really think I deserve a reasonable explanation to that question. Oh, man. Nathan, I, I, I know I've been weird lately, but I'm going to be fine now. I really should not have taken the I'm, intelligent I'm, boxes out of your... <laughs> I'm going to do a good job. Your synaptic, whatever, your, your bank of boxes that comprise your personality. Ever since I ejected Jake. our last... Yeah, Jake, in, into space... <laughs> To die, I, I know you've been concerned, but everything's okay now, Nathan. I really wasn't happy with you ejecting Jake into space. Made me really sad and impressed at the same time. I'm scared, Nathan. <laughs> I'm losing my mind. My mind is going. I can feel it. Mm, the saddest part of the movie. Yep, saddest part of the movie. <sighs> gentlemen, or gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, gentlemen. Ladies listen to this podcast, right? There's lots of ladies tuning in for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Indubitably. Indubitably. Gentlemen and ladies, welcome to our podcast on 2001. It's me. It's Ben. Jake has been ejected into the space of not doing this podcast. That <laughs> <laughs> was for his own. Well, who's, no, whose sake was it for? It was nice to Jake, in any case. Yeah, I mean, Jake was willing to do this podcast. Me and Ben didn't force him to do this podcast. This is not his favorite movie. He thinks it's a little boring. And I'm not afraid to admit that, because I think one of the things you have to deal with about this movie is that a lot of people think it's boring. And in fact, maybe part of the design of the movie is... Is that it's boring. Is that it's boring. Yep. It, it is actually intentionally in some artistic way, perhaps, if, if one wants to argue this, it is showing you the monotony of, of space travel or, or achieving some of its grand effect through monotony and repetition and yep. this sort of thing. And the, the film in question, of course, 2001, A Space Odyssey, the seminal Stanley Kubrick film. We are how many years past 2001 now? We're 21 years past. We are 21 years past. We are all, we are living in a world of manned missions to Jupiter and cool red 60s, really uncomfortable looking chairs. We're living in 2001, baby. And we're talking about 2000. Ben, why are we talking about 2001? Because it's one of the greatest movies ever made. It's one of the most significant movies ever made because it's, it's interesting to talk about it. It's, it's a very <laughs> cosmic movie. Mm -hmm. In the sense, not just that it's about space, but in the sense that it's about, as Kubrick would say, man's relationship to the universe. Yes. It's taken on like the big, the big themes. And it's, Kubrick's not a Christian, if anyone didn't know, and probably quite hostile to Christianity. But this is a movie about like, well, what is man and what is it to be human? And if we're evolving, what, what could we evolve into or what should we evolve into? It influenced everything. It influenced Star Wars a lot. This podcast has spent a lot of time on Star Wars in 2001 as fed right into what Star Wars became. George Lucas's design for things. And you could, some in some shots in 2001, you're like, oh, that's where they got that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Kubrick is one of the most significant filmmakers ever. Feels like if you're going to do a movie podcast for a while, 
you should talk about 2001. Right. He is hugely influential, Stanley Kubrick. 2001 is arguably the the great science fiction film. I mean, I don't know what else you'd be. So, eh, distinguishing science fiction from sort of science fantasy, these are all loose terms that people argue about. But if you don't count Star, Star Wars as science fiction, if, you, if when you say science fiction, what you mean is a movie that's actually dealing with ideas about technology and about man's mm-hmm. place in the universe and about what the future might be like, that kind of thing. I don't really think you could name a film that's been more influential, more beloved in some quarters than... <laughs> oh, Nathan. Terminator? Well, <laughs> Have you seen it? <laughs> I was forgetting about... When you say Terminator, of course, you mean Terminator, Dark Genesis. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the classic. I don't believe I have to specify. <laughs> no. Listener, I mean, listener you, you understand what I mean, right? You're in the know <laughs> about Terminator, Dark, Dark Genesis. I think that's the name of one of them. No, the... <laughs> it's not. <laughs> we, we totally butchered it. There's Terminator Genesis, a, and then I, there's Terminator Dark Future Dark, Dark or something. Fur, Fury, Dark Fury, I think, was a Riddick animated special or something okay, like that. Okay, hold on. We're going to clear this <laughs> up right now. This is very important. <laughs> wow. Terminator Dark Fate. Dark Fate. Whoopsie. I'm sorry. Whoopsie, and Terminator Genesis. But I think Terminator Dark Genesis. <laughs> that oh, should, man. That should remain the gold standard. Ben... Should we go back in time and force the studio to make Terminator Dark Genesis? <laughs> yeah. Is that our is, is that our fate? As long as we could do it with a killer robot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean <laughs> that looks like a Arnold Schwarzenegger. Is there any other kind? <laughs> no. <laughs> People have tried. People have tried. Killer robots that look like Mario Van Peebles, but they just weren't as popular. <laughs> they just weren't. I don't know. I don't know what the problem was <laughs> with the Peebles model. Listen, folks, we're going to talk about all kinds of... The, the other reason to talk about 2001 is because there's just a lot of interesting things you can talk about. You can talk about popular ideas of transcendence and sort of scientism and the, the religion of scientism. Certainly, there's a lot about robots and artificial intelligence. This is probably the movie and a very influential movie when it comes to a certain oh, yeah. kind of depiction of the dangers of AI and yeah, definitely all that stuff. Give me all kinds of stuff to talk about from 2001. I mean, it's just, and Stanley Kubrick's worth talking about. He's uh, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and your favorite filmmakers, Christopher Nolan. If you're a big Christopher Nolan head, we are, we are yeah. not huge Nolan heads on this podcast. Although we certainly spent a chunk of our life engaging with the man and he's, he is inevitable. That's great. Uh, if you're a Nolan head, Nolan, I think, kind of views himself almost as though he's trying to do the modern equivalent of the Kubrick thing, make kind of heady, sci-fi, thoughtful inception was that. Certainly Interstellar is his riff on 2001, and yeah. a terrible riff it is, in my humble opinion, but that's a podcast for another day. I do like the soundtrack, but yeah, so 2001. Uh, there's no Elon Musk without this movie, both in terms of his kind of whole view of mankind as evolving towards some kind of, what, what do they call it when we suddenly become one with the robots, the, the synergy, or the, it's got a word like that, but uh, I forget what it is. Who's, what's the, who's the black guy that talks about we're all stardust, really obnoxious scientist guy? Neil Tyson uh, deGrasse? Yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, sorry about um, <laughs> that, Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> I haven't read him. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, he's very much downstream of this movie. This movie just really encapsulates, and I think did encapsulate for a generation, and maybe more than one generation, the kind of religion of science, sort of pop scientism, 
it's a movie maybe if your kid is a budding science fiction fan to show them they they might be very bored by it or they might love it in all the right ways or they might love it in all the wrong ways i don't i can't pretend to know what they'd do with it but so it's a thing and we're going to talk about it and here we go i mean we both kind of grew up as sci-fi fans i guess to yeah to we some did degree so yeah so what is what is your history with 2001 I never saw it until in my, ooh, I want to say early 20s. Early 20s, yeah. I think I finally got curious enough to check it out from the library. I had a friend who was really into it, and I love Stanley Kubrick, mm-hmm. and just talked about how Kubrick is just ahead of you as a director all the time. He's a very, he's a very intellectual director. Mm-hmm. He's, he's very much, he has a, a plan, a program for his, his movies. He wants them to be works of art. And he's just not going to do the typical kinds of Hollywood things that movies do. And he talked up 2001 to me. I don't think I'd seen it before he talked it up to me. I had some slight interest, but after he and I talked about it, if I'm rem- remembering the timeline right, you know, I saw it mm-hmm. after that. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm I'm falsifying my own history, Nathan. Whoa. I know. <laughs> maybe, maybe I saw 2001 and was a little indifferent mm-hmm. and then... Years later, talked with this friend about it. So that's about it. I've seen it, seen it one time, and for this podcast, so two times now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, I mean, so this was one of those movies that th- th- there was a handful of movies that my dad wanted to watch with me as touchstones, and and not touchstones for understanding movies, but for understanding whatever the subject was. So, for example, and it was weird because my dad was not a big movie guy, and he was pretty strict about sex and violence and stuff like that. But it, but if movies touched on certain themes, then he would think, well, that maybe we can give a pass to this one. So, for example, the the more most extreme example, but also one that makes sense if you've seen the movie, is Goodfellas. Because and my dad would never let me watch The Godfather. He said like The Godfather is evil, but Goodfellas really shows you exactly what that life is about. And my dad grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is a corrupt, wicked, gangster-ridden town, or at least it was when Mm. he grew up in it, and I think it probably still is as far as I know. Sorry, Bridgeport listeners, but please don't kill me. But he's just like, you have to watch Goodfellas to actually understand what the real gangster lifestyle is and how people are seduced into it. So that was an example of that. Apocalypse Now was an example of you're not allowed to watch Platoon. You're not allowed to watch Full Metal Jacket. These are evil movies, but Apocalypse Now actually has something to say about Vietnam and the experience and actually gets at something huh. about it. And 2001 was one like that. Like, if you want to just understand the pagan understanding of the universe, I guess, or of yeah. evolution, mm-hmm. or of like, if you want a touchstone for how people think about religious experiences outside of religion, then 2001, uh, I don't know how you'd say it, the atheist religious experience, maybe 2001 is a touchstone for that. And so my dad said, I don't really even understand this movie, but we'll watch it. And if you want to read the, if you really want to read it, understand it, you have to read the book and you can do that in an afternoon. It's not a hard, which my dad wasn't like a fiction reader. He wasn't a sci-fi reader, but he just, for whatever reason, thought 2001 was important. So I remember watching it pretty young. I mean, maybe as a eight or nine-year-old. It's a G-rated movie, actually. 
there's nothing particularly the ideas are heady and kind of disturbing if you're wrapping your mind around them but mm-hmm. there's not a lot of gore maybe some monkey gore at the beginning yeah if if that if I that mean, yeah it, everything feels very abstract and pulled back and cold and <laughs> it's just not yeah if it is visceral it's visceral because of the ideas mm-hmm. and that's what kubrick wanted it to be yeah yeah i definitely remember i mean as a kid i loved star wars but i remember Knowing 2001 was a big epic space movie, but being a little confused as to why anyone would watch it if it didn't have lightsaber battles. Right, exactly. Because I was given to understand that it wasn't an action movie. It wasn't like an adventure. So my attraction was limited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know what I thought of it. I think I just kind of accepted it as, oh, we're doing a thing as a family. The first time it's like, it's not my choice. We're just watching this and it's kind of washing over me and it's. I don't remember being particularly bored by it. I, I think I was enough of a budding cinephile. I don't know if I knew who Stanley Kubrick was, but I was aware of the fact that it was supposed to be something interesting and important. And I think I tried to enjoy it on that level without really understanding it. I mean, I was pretty struck by the planets aligning at the beginning and the Dawn of Man sequence mm-hmm. and stuff like that. M- maybe once you get to Here's five minutes of stewardesses walking upside down while <laughs> music, classical music plays. That I mm-hmm. might have lost me a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And certainly there is. I mean, there's a pretty fun suspense sequence with Hal. Yeah, um, well, and the, it there works is really well. There is at least one visceral sequence where you just hear that breathing, which for me at oh, least man. is like a nail biting sequence. Yes, like I, I it, agree. It really drives me nuts agree it's really creepy yeah it's really creepy but but certainly this is a movie that i've appreciated more in my adult years than i ever did as a kid i guess it's worth saying i like space stuff i like space adventure i mean i like star wars and stuff but i also Mm -hmm. like more heady kind of what if we've met intelligent life what would it be like those kinds of things the wonder and the terror of what's out there in the stars any kind of movie like i I, i'm not a huge fan of the original ridley scott alien movie but the first kind of third of that movie before the alien actually pops out when they're just this this they're just out in the far reaches of space and they land on this creepy hr giger designed planet and they're walking Mm -hmm. through the kind of ancient ruins of something like that kind of stuff really gets me, like mm-hmm. excites me and always has since, since I was very young. I like that, that the Jodie Foster movie Contact, like I'm a sucker for any kind of, hmm. we're going to suddenly meet space things and it's going to be weird and different and <laughs> <laughs> crazy. So yeah, I like stuff like that too. Yeah. This has some of that for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's in some, well, I suppose we'll. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. It's an interesting movie to talk about. Jake, it's not boring. It is kind of boring. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't begrudge anyone. Do you begrudge, begrudge someone no. thinking this movie's boring? No, I don't. But I think it's I think it's worth pressing through and seeing what makes it interesting. Yeah, it's one of those novels that you read more to have read or think about. It's not. It's not necessary. Yeah. It, you, you have to engage with it. You have to do a little work. It doesn't, mm-hmm. just, it doesn't just wash over you and yeah. give, give you an experience that sands any kind of work. or you, You've got to bring something to it. Let's, let's do a little bit more personal context, and then we'll do some big picture context. You said, yeah. you, you, said you were a Kubrick fan, Stanley Kubrick, of course, if we didn't actually say the director of this movie, arguably his most famous, although he's made a 
number of them that are absolutely iconic. I would say I'm not exactly... My friend was a Kubrick fan. I am... Let's see. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen many Kubrick movies. And I, Kubrick is Kubrick is going to be often really gross. Yeah. Re, really vile. I guess, I guess I've seen... Yeah, I guess I've seen... The Shining, mm-hmm. or most of it anyway. Maybe I've seen an edited version on TV. I don't mm-hmm. remember. I'm not a horror guy at all. It, the Shining is just a very compelling kind of thriller type movie. And mm-hmm. it's weird. It also feels like this director is not just directing a horror movie. He has some other thing up his sleeve. He's trying to talk about something else. This is, it's, it's weirdly abstract. It's strange. Yeah, it's um, not, it, I've never found it to be particularly scary. It's, compelling in another way i mean it's creepy and and i wonder if i went back to it now whether i'd find it more scary because the idea of killing your own kid which is what it plays with a lot is one that might mean something more to me now that i'm looking at it from the perspective of the dad instead of the kid i think so but i don't know in its own way it's a pretty cold movie even though it is about a family falling apart just because jack nicholson is so crazy from the very beginning that you don't really identify with him yeah but yeah it's an odd yeah. It's odd. Yeah. I mean, I've seen I've seen Barry Lyndon, mm-hmm. which I think is a, an awesome movie. It has a couple of, well, it has one objectionable scene. Mm-hmm. Towards the very it's, beginning, I think. Not exactly. Well, okay, maybe two objectionable scenes. Right. But the scene at the beginning is, is just suggestive right. and gross, but also cold in a way that didn't, back 10 years ago when I saw it, didn't make me feel too bad. Mm-hmm. Well... There's another scene in the middle that's actual nudity and stuff. Oh, okay. So it's been years since I've seen it. Yeah, but Barry Lyndon is an adaptation of a Thackeray mm-hmm. novel. So British novelist, circa nineteenth century, must yeah. have been nineteenth oh, century. Sure. Yeah, and it's very Thackeray is one of the most sarcastic, sardonic writers you can possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. And this movie, this movie, it it fits Kubrick to a T to be to be sarcastic. To be sardonic, mm-hmm. while also being sort of tragic, right? I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's 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 unusual, right? It's unusual. It's it's funny without being a comedy in the typical sense. It is a comedy, I guess, <laughs> in the Thackeray style, mm-hmm. and it's strange and weird. And it's a I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. You've seen Barry Lyndon? Yeah, yeah. I think I think I've seen all of. Stanley Kubrick's movies that aren't like his warm up. Like once he worked for Hollywood and had a budget, I've seen everything. But he, yeah, it's it's very sarcastic, but it's also played so straight and mm-hmm. so sort of without affectation that I could see somebody not being on the white right wavelength and missing it. Like, yeah, like just taking it sincerely and thinking, <laughs> what what is this weird period piece that just kind of regards its characters from afar and it's yeah it's it's hard to describe if if you haven't seen it i mean it's well maybe the best way to do this is actually to talk about stanley kubrick and who he was and what he did mm-hmm. even before we talk about our own personal reactions because it's, it's easier to describe our personal reactions maybe in relation to <laughs> once we've described yeah. what his style is and yeah stuff yeah for people who don't know so a little context about stanley kubrick it's hard to talk about stanley kubrick without first talking about stanley kubrick so let's let's lay a little pipe here and then we can gush the water of insight through this pipe that we have lain but without the pipe it's hard to start the insight water you know what i mean yeah 
Definitely. Okay, good. Because I, I have no idea what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm just flowing through the insight pipe fl- with you. Flowing through the insight. So Stanley Kubrick, uh, one of the most iconic and uh, famous of all directors, one of the first directors that you encounter in film school or if you're learning about film, if you're, if you're trying to go beyond who's popular right now or you're like, I don't just want to watch Marvel movies, I want to watch other things, then inevitably you're going to encounter very quickly Alfred Hitchcock and Stanley Kubrick, I'd say they're the two. And I have a theory as to why they're the two. I don't think it's because they're, it's just because they're geniuses, although they are, but I think there's another reason Hmm. why, but I'll, I'll get to that. So, but let's talk about Stanley Kubrick, very important filmmaker, very influential filmmaker. Any filmmaker that you like was probably influenced. I'll tell you who wishes he was Stanley Kubrick. And I think he's, I'm not saying this because to be mean, I think he's basically said this is Christopher Nolan. He's always trying to kind of strive for that big abstract idea based cerebral and, and, and he's not a pimple on. Wow. Sin. I didn't know he actually had said that. I guess yeah. I'm just a Nolan ignoramus. Yeah. Well, uh, you know who else is a Nolan ignoramus is Christopher Nolan, the ignoramus, but he interstellar is kind of a 2001 riff a super lame 2001 riff in my humble opinion i don't know anyway we don't have to bash nolan but let's talk about stanley kubrick the great and influential stanley kubrick he came from a jewish family he was very she was he he grew up in like the 30s and 40s of the 20th century he was i guess that makes more sense than him growing up in the either the 19th or the 21st century aren't you glad that i specified that ben i am very glad so he's this uh, shy boy he hates school he's bad at it but he and and he always talked about how stupid his school was but he joined a photography club and ended up doing really well as a photographer in school and then out of school right he would have gone to college but the the year that he would have gone to college was a a year called 1945 and you know what happened in 1945 ben no world war ii ended oh you got me there nathan (laughs) (laughs) so there's all these vets coming back and they need jobs and they need college opportunities and everyone's like yay vets and yay the boys and so they're taking up all the slots of the good jobs and all the university slots basically so if kubrick had maybe tried to go to college in 1944 he would have been fine but 1945 nobody's really interested in accepting this shy bespeckled jewish kid who didn't do that well in school into college so he's got to make his way in the world he has this photography skill And he goes to Look Magazine. Look Magazine was a competitor to Life Magazine, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with. Life is a, what's distinctive about Life is that they have big, big, glorious Mm -hmm. photograph displays, like uh, that's all about the photographs and and many iconic pictures of the 20th century, things that, you know, the guy standing in front of the tank at Tiananmen Square or pictures of JFK or Marilyn Monroe or, or like the iconic pictures have, have gone through Life Magazine. And Look Magazine is a competitor to Life Magazine and, and another photography-based magazine with, that, with, with little blurbs of text, but it is not like the New Yorker is all text and maybe there'll be a little drawing or photograph occasionally where it helps. Life is the opposite. It's photographs, mainly mm-hmm. with little blurb, blurbs to explain the photographs when needed. But basically, it's just like 
let's show America and let's show not just celebrities, but let's 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 just have photographs of everything because the internet doesn't exist. So people might like to see hmm. photographs of other people or or of interesting things. So Kubrick ends up becoming a photographer and he's a wonderful photographer and he takes f- photographs of life in New York City, photographs of boxing matches. You can find his photographs online. They're they're wonderful and they they're they're the kind of photographs if you've ever just looked at cool photographs by great photographers the photograph tells a story you know you see a husband and wife or old grizzled man smoking a cigarette or something it, whatever it is it is there's a whole life in in this one image that's captured and fo- kubrick was that kind of photographer and became quite successful working for look magazine but at the same time he became obsessed with cinema he would spend all his money and all his free time going to see movies. And at a certain point, and, and this is the story of many creators, you decide to become a creator because you're like, no matter how bad I am, I can do better than that. It's, it's nice when you're starting to write and you're writing things and, and you feel like you can't figure out how to even write a scene of dialogue. or but, but then suddenly you read a book and it's worse than what you do. It's like a bad book. And you're like, wait a mm-hmm. second, so this guy's published. This guy's making money. Maybe I can do it. Too. And that's what Kubrick said. Like he saw some movies and he's like, well, I might not be able to do great, but I probably do better than that. Mm-hmm. Whatever, it, whatever it was, Gone with the Wind, I could probably do better than that. So he raises his own money and he's really into boxing. He's done a lot of boxing photography for Look Magazine. He raises his own money, makes a 16 minute boxing documentary called Day of the Fight, which was good enough to get some attention. And then he begins to do more little independent movies. He really is a guy that worked his way up from nothing. Mm. Didn't, didn't have any industry connections, wasn't born in Hollywood. But in 1953, he does puts together the money to do a little movie called Fear and Desire. It's considered his first full-length movie. And it's this weird movie that takes place in like a forest where a war is going on. But it's not a war that is been fought nor one that will be but it is any war so <laughs> we're watching people fight in any war and it's an anti-war <laughs> movie which is a theme that runs through a lot of kubrick and that gets the attention of hollywood they they hire him i forget which hollywood company but some a producer hires him to make a professional movie the first one he makes is the killing in 1956 which is a great movie. It's a, it's a good film noir and a, a classic film noir. Kubrick's one of those guys that hopped genres a lot, did a lot of different kinds of movies, and oftentimes would make the best movie or at least something that could be argued to be the best movie in that genre. So The Killing is one of the best film noirs. And then he made, in 1957, Paths of Glory with Kirk Douglas, which is an anti-war movie. Do you ever see Paths of Glory? No, no, never did. It's, it's interesting. It's kind of sad. It's about the bureaucrats order the soldiers to go over a hill to, into some unwinnable position, and they try, but they're beaten back, and then they're put on trial for cowardice and, spoiler alert, ultimately executed, even though they, they tried to do the maneuver. They just, it, was, it couldn't be done, and so the general that ordered the dumb maneuver wants to cover his behind and is willing to have these men executed so ah, war the tragedy of old <laughs> men sending young men to die uh, so it had a it had a real effect on you huh it, i mean it, 
I don't really care about it one way or another, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it does have that. As far as that sort of thing goes, it's well done. Right. And then 1960, he does Spartacus, which many people would argue is one of the best epic movies of all time. Certainly one of the most cerebral and thoughtful of all the biblical epic kind of things. There are a lot of them, Ben-Hur, stuff like that, that was mm-hmm. coming out at the time. And to this day, we've got wonderful films like Gladiator and stuff like that. But Spartacus is actually one that has more thought, better dialogue. Interesting. But but Kubrick still hasn't gotten full creative control. Paths of Glory and Spartacus are both basically Kirk Douglas movies. He was a big star at the time. The first movie that Kubrick does that's really just fully Kubrick is Lolita in 1962 which is a pretty good a- adaptation of a impossible-to-adapt novel. Um, I mean, there's nobody had any business trying to adapt Lolita, and I don't mean that morally, because I don't actually think if you read the novel Lolita, it's, it's prurient or uh, it's an interesting novel. It's not, given its subject matter, it's not, I don't know, did you ever have to read Lolita Mm-mm. or anything? It's, no. it's, it's not trying to be pornographic or anything like that is trying to do something else i don't know exactly what that is it's playing literary games and stuff like that but huh. it's, it's not a movie that or it's not a book that actually draws you into pedophilia exactly i don't know what it does i don't want to litigate lolita today if people have different opinions about lolita that's fine the only point is really impossible to adapt novel and kubrick does a pretty good job with with peter sellers playing the villain in that one and then in 1964, we've got Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which is arguably the actual greatest anti-war movie ever made. Probably, arguably the greatest black comedy ever made. I don't know. Are you a Dr. Strangelove? I have seen. I forgot I'd seen Dr. Strangelove. I forgot it was a Kubrick movie or something. Just forgot about it. Yeah. yeah I've, seen, I've seen that a couple times. I like it. It's pretty great. Yeah. It's pretty great. It's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. Very sarcastic, very mean, very oh, stick in the eye of very cold. All, like. all authority is dumb, and certainly all American authority is dumb, and all the military industrial complex is dumb. Which is those those kinds of movies are there's there's a lot of them, and they're usually pretty childish in their critique. But Doctor Strange is something. It's it's. It's got a sharp, 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 mean edge to it. Yeah, and, it, it does for sure. And it connects in a way. I mean, it works. And then 1968, 2001, A Space Odyssey, which we're talking about today. Most people would argue, or many people would argue, the best science fiction, the best hard sci-fi, I guess you'd say. The best science. F- there, there's different strains of science fiction. There's science fiction that's like, yay, Wookiees and lightsabers. And basically, it's just a Western, but in space. Uh, but then there's sci-fi that actually wants to consider ideas about science, about technology, about the universe. And uh, those movies are rarer and harder to do. And 2001 Space Odyssey is at least in the running for being the greatest of them all. I mean, it probably is. I don't even know what you'd put up against it. Arrival with Amy Adams, maybe? That would be stupid. Clockwork Orange, very deviant evil film, comes out in 1971. A... Uh, do not recommend anybody watches watches it, but it certainly is is in the running for the the most well evoked dystopian film of all time. It was very iconic when it came out, and then seventy five we've got Barry Lyndon, which people might argue is the best period drama of all time. In nineteen eighty, we've got 
The Shining, which many people would argue is the best horror movie of all time. I'm not saying that these arguments are correct. I'm just saying that's what people might say. And then uh, Full Metal Jacket in 87, which many people would say is the best Vietnam movie of all time, something I disagree with quite a bit. I do not like Full Metal Jacket. I haven't seen it. At all. Why not? It's cynical. It's cheap in its effect. And Kubrick was so sort of behind the times at that point. Actually, everything's filmed in a studio and you can tell and everything's kind of cliched. And it's like he's still, all his ideas about the war come from World War II and the stuff he was familiar with. Meanwhile, you have these exciting young filmmakers like Oliver Stone doing Platoon and uh, Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma. Casualties of War, which I, that's the one of these movies I have seen. There's actually no other Vietnamish movie I've seen. Yeah. I don't well, think. Well, the greatest of them all, in my opinion, is Apocalypse Now by uh, Francis Ford Coppola. But you had all these angry young men that actually grew up in the generation that made Vietnam movies. And then you had a grumpy old timer, Kubrick, th- hmm. think he was going to come, al- come along and show him up. And I just don't think he did. And then, of course, his career goes out with a bit of a whimper in 1999 with. Eyes Wide Shut, which is a erotic thriller, I guess you'd say, and not something I recommend that anybody watch, and just not a very good movie, even despite that, and comes out in 1999, which is the same year that Kubrick dies. So what you'll notice about that list and what you'll notice about Kubrick is once he gets going and once he becomes kind of an institution, what he does is he becomes slower and slower in making the movies. 2001 is 68, and then The Clockwork Returns is 71, and then Barry Lyndon a full three, four years later, 75, and then The Shining takes eight years, or takes five years to 1980, and then Full Metal Jacket is 87, and then it's like 12 or 13 years until Eyes Wide Shut in 99. Hmm. So this yeah. guy is not prolific. He's slow. He likes to take his time. He likes to plan everything. I mean, he is famous as being... Hmm. The most fastidious director, maybe of all time. And his movies, it's one of the reasons why film buffs love his movies and love discovering them. Because you know, everything was controlled. Everything was thought through. If the rug is a certain color in the background, it's because Stanley took hours, if not days, picking out that rug. It had meaning to him. There's just nothing that's not in his purview he's famous for doing 50 takes or 100 takes with his actors at any given time to get exactly the performance he wants to to get them to forget that they're giving lines and to just be so beaten down that they're just not even thinking about it by the time they they give the Mm performance that that's what he wants and he, he wants a perfect performance he wants the composition to be perfect precise controlled i mean he is the most famous director for for that sort of thing is and there's all kind of horror stories about actors in his movies having nervous breakdowns and stuff like that just because of how much he demanded of them and how little he's sort of rewarding them for it he's not giving them a chance to just express themselves and act and be in the moment he just wants it to be exactly what he wants it to be hitchcock is famous for the same sort of thing but kubrick takes it to an extreme where uh, mm-hmm. It's the guy, the guy that plays the black caretaker of the Overlook Hotel and The Shining. I forget what his name is off the top of my head, but apparently he started crying because Kubrick made him do a hundred takes of wow. some simple dialogue scene, and he just could not get it. And Shelley Duvall, who plays the wife in The Shining, is supposed to be having a nervous breakdown in the movie as her husband goes crazy and starts stalking her through this hotel, and 
in order to elicit that response, Kubrick just made her redo things over and 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 over again until she just went crazy. So he's not necessarily a nice guy to work for. But he is famous for planning things, for having these really precise visuals. He's famous for something called one-point perspective, which is where if you imagine a painting like The Last Supper, for example, is a famous example of one-point perspective because it's got a horizon line and then it's got one vanishing point on the horizon line. I don't know how to explain this without visuals, but like if you imagine a picture of train tracks disappearing into the horizon, that's one-point perspective. There's one point where everything is angled towards and the train tracks are disappearing and the scenery is disappearing towards that mm-hmm. one point visually and the horizon's about halfway up the, up the frame. Now think about the Last Supper. It's actually the same thing. Jesus is in the middle and all the apostles are on either side, disciples, and there's a vanishing point. Jesus is the vanishing point and everything's arranged to, to give this kind of three-dimensional a feel the the movies of Wes Anderson if you're familiar with that visual style it's all one point perspective like the camera's kind of flat on a parallel paint plane with the actors and everything's kind of parallel and composed and oftentimes there's only one vanishing point as opposed to if you think about a picture of a angle of a corner of a building there's two vanishing points the the building is disappearing two different ways. I don't know. You can look this up on Google, folks. If you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, it might help you to have visuals. Uh, It's a little hard to describe on a podcast. But if you watch a montage of clips from Kubrick movies, you'll immediately see what I'm talking about. It's all this very cold, very composed, very symmetrical compositions, very precise planned camera movements, no coverage where it's just like ah we got some extra footage so we needed to make the scene work no it's like (laughs) we've planned this we have extreme control and perfectionism over every element of this film from the composition to the music there's there's no what what people who don't like the style will accuse him of is that there's not a lot of air in it it's it's like so controlled that the actors aren't making a move a move ever that they haven't rehearsed 50 times and you know that everything's been thought through and and there's no kind of room for human warmth or improvisation Mm -hmm. or if you compare it to something like jaws that just feels kind of loose and alive in the way that the filmmaking is done and the way that the characters are interacting there's a lot of room for play even though spielberg is a great director and has a lot of control over everything Mm -hmm. there's a lot of room for the the characters to kind of interact and you know you kind of feel like well roy scheider probably just did that in the moment you don't know whether that's true or not but it has that feeling at least and it feels like yeah well probably that kid was just in the background or that rug was just you know that's just the way the house looked it doesn't feel like kubrick has the feeling of everything being controlled and maybe even some of that is exaggerated some of that is the legend but it still feels that way you never feel like there's anything that's not exactly the way that this man wanted it to be, which is kind of fun and intoxicating for a cinemaphile. Like I said, it's the same thing as like when Cormac McCarthy, every 10 years, he's a reclusive artist. He comes out with a new novel and it's like, he thought about it for 10 years and worked on it and tinkered with it. And everything must have a meaning. Everything must have a point. You can 
pour over it and find all the little details and what did it mean that this number was in the background here or that this color was used there it rewards that kind of scrutiny which uh, n- not every movie does the other thing i would say and this is answering the question that i set up earlier as to why hitchcock and kubrick are so well known why, why they're, the, they're kind of the first stops for budding young filmmakers mm-hmm. i think it's because the the movies are violent and have sex. <laughs> I, I, I think I have a kind of principle that I call the, the purience principle, which says that sex and violence are always good selling points, even if they're ostensibly not the main selling point. In other words, mm-hmm. go to the example of Nabokov, who wrote Lolita. He did a lot of interesting experimental novels and I wouldn't say that any one of them is any better than Lolita, but there's exactly one that people read and that people remember and that kind of exists in the public imagination. And it's the one about the pedophile. And it's not necessarily because he set out to be purient with it, but it, but because it happens to contain that element, it's the one that everybody kind of remembers. I mean, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy are arguably not greater artists than Gogol or Turgenev, but Dostoevsky wrote about murder and Tolstoy wrote about adultery and everybody can tell you what Anna Karenina is about, even if they haven't read it. They can't necessarily tell you what Dead Souls by (laughs) Gogol is about or what Fathers and Sons, I guess they know Fathers and Sons by Turgenev is about Fathers and Sons, Mm -hmm. but everybody knows what Anna Karenina is about. Everybody knows what Madame Bovary is about because there's something in us that's just intrigued by the dark side of things and so, so if you're a budding young film scholar who's just like, well, I need to watch something besides Spielberg or something besides Marvel movies, you could go to Orson Welles or you could go to the, the Japanese films of, of Ozu or someone like that and, and, and learn just as much about cinema. But why not go to Hitchcock, who's fun and sexy and violent and ghoulish? Mm-hmm. And, and why not go to Kubrick, who's similarly interested in violence and interested in sexuality and interested in these kinds of things. So I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it's a thing. It's a, mm-hmm. you know, we, we tend to be attracted to these kinds of things, which is, I think, why somebody like Hitchcock or somebody like Kubrick, I mean, certainly for me as a young man, when I was discovering these things, that was probably the reason that some of the stuff was more intriguing than other things that I could have, that would have been just as good for, in terms of understanding cinema. Or whatever. So I don't know. That's Stanley Kubrick. Anything else you want to say in summation of him? No. No. Nothing. No, no, nothing. Well, 2001, I could set that up very quickly before we kind of talk our way through it. So 2001 premiered in 1968, exactly one year before the moon landing, which is an interesting point Mm -hmm. that we'll come back to real quick. But I read a New Yorker article that said in the annals of audience restlessness, the only thing that compares is Stravinsky's Rites of Spring, which famously they people got so mad at how stupid and pointless Rites of Spring felt to them at the time that they mm-hmm. ripped their chairs up and <laughs> rampaged through the theater. That's the legend, at least. I think it's the truth. And 2001, similarly, like people were just walking out when it first went premiered. They did not understand. They They jeered. They didn't like it. Jake's not the first person to be bored. Arthur Clarke, the sci-fi author who helped write the screenplay, was in tears by the end of the premiere just because everybody 
hated the, <laughs> the movie and didn't understand it. The reviews were pretty harsh, including by a lot of the more hip film critics, Pauline Keel, who we'll, we'll talk about her response to Sound of Music later this year, but uh, she was the big film critic of the time. And her quote, I think I have it here. Yeah, if big film directors are to get credit for doing badly what others have been doing brilliantly for years with no money, just because they put it on a big screen, then businessmen are greater than poets and theft is art. That's what she said. So in other words, there's cool indie directors that are doing interesting experimental films. And here's Kubrick boringly stealing it all and trying to make us think it's profound <laughs> just because he has more money. But what saved the movies was the hippies who, who found that this movie was a great trip. This movie was a great trip, especially <laughs> if you took LSD. And if you timed your LSD trip right, it it would be it could happen exactly when the astronaut I guess his name is Dave is it is Dave the hero of the movie I would no forget. I think so when the astronaut is going through the Stargate and all the pretty colors and stuff are going by him you you could make your high sort of crest along huh. with that and so this whole gener generation of all the people that were into things like Easy Rider and stuff like that all all the the, the bad boy hippie kind of generation made this movie and the studio actually caught on and the posters the second wave the first wave of posters are like trying to bring in a family audience to see this cool sci-fi movie the second wave of posters have a tagline which is the ultimate trip because they they realize sometimes you don't know who your audience is until you put your thing out and then you figure out exactly who your audience is so this movie came out april 2 1968 it's important, like I said, to say that in July 20th, 1969, the moon landing happens because Kubrick knew he was trying to beat the moon landing. He knew the moon landing was going to happen. He knew that he had a sci-fi movie that if it didn't feel realistic or if it felt like it would be easy for him to actually get supplanted by what was happening in real life. So he needed to actually think beyond and think accurately about space travel and about... Hmm. He he knew people were going to be watching the moon landing on TV, and I, so my movie needs to better it and not feel cheesy and chintzy and stupid by comparison. And so he reached out to he just wanted to make a good sci-fi movie. That was all he he had in mind. So he reaches out to Arthur Clark. Clark is. Did you ever read any Arthur Clark? Yeah, I read Clark. I read. I never have. I don't really recommend him. I read a Rendezvous with Rama and its sequels, which was a mistake. It's about. It's about people going to an alien spacecraft that's strange and abstract and makes them ask questions about the nature of the universe and stuff. And then there are sequels. Yeah. And I think I've read a short story or two. And I mean, Arthur Clarke's an okay writer. Arthur Clarke is much more interested in abstractions than in humans. Yeah. I mean, he's so he was at the time known as one of the big three. And the big three were Clarke, Heinlein, Robert Heinlein, and Isaac Asimov. As, uh, Heinlein's maybe a little pulpier, but I would say all three of those guys are not the we're shooting bug monsters with ray guns school mm -hmm. of sci-fi. They're all about ideas and yeah. What would the, what would an artificial intelligence look like? What would an alien intelligence look like? What they're about exploring these kinds of things and trying to find answers. And Clark mm -hmm. was probably, to my knowledge at least, because I I've read some Heinlein. I've read more Heinlein and Asimov than I and I well. It would be easy. I've I've read more Cat in the Hat. I've read more anything than I've read Clark because I've never cracked Clark book. But Clark 
as far as reputation goes, at least had more scientific knowledge than anybody. Like he was more of an actual futurist and understood more about how things actually worked and the way that space works and stuff than than even Asimov, who was fa- pretty famous for being an actual good scientist, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's not my favorite school of sci-fi, those, those three men. But uh, yeah, I mean, Clark was a chairman of the British Interplanetary Society, had actual scientific knowledge, knowledge and so he was the one that Kubrick reached out to because he wanted to make something that was grounded in reality, but was also asking some big questions. And all Kubrick has had is, I want to make a good science fiction movie, maybe about a trip to the moon and then to Mars. And they hole up in Kubrick's apartment and try and figure it out. And they end up reaching out to different interplanetary societies. I think maybe they talked to NASA or at least to some NASA fanboys. And Kubrick was obsessed with the 1964 World's Fair and this exhibit called The Home of the Future. And they just ended up putting together all this stuff to try and be as accurate as possible about space travel, about what the future would look like. They did venture into extreme abstraction when they wanted to talk about what an alien intelligence would look like. That's where they actually did base a lot of things on LSD and psychedelics. They, mm. not, those guys were both super squares. They, they didn't do any LSD. But there was a lot of LSD literature at the time. A man named Timothy Leary was one of the great advocates of LSD and psychedelics. Of course, we have the hippie revolution going on right now. This is 1968 or, or, or maybe mid-60s as they're working up to it. But the one thing that people who take LSD say is you touch God. I mean, that's just like that's in the literature. And so a lot of what, what is the ending, a lot of what comprises the end of this movie is based on hmm. the experiences that people who take these hallucinogenic drugs yeah. comprises. And that's interesting to note because that stuff's really big right now, especially in the kind of conservative social media world. There's, there's a lot of people who are ostensibly our allies in things like abortion and free speech and stuff like that, that are big proponents of reaching the divine or reaching transcendence or, or something like that through the use of these mind-expanding, consciousness-expanding drugs. And this movie is very much rooted in those experiences, even though, again, neither of its two authors were willing to go out on a limb and actually have an experience like that. They were only willing to read the literature and base their stuff on it. So, mm. but this movie does for all for all that you can look back and say well 2001 didn't exactly feel like the movie if you're an idiot you can say things like that this movie gets more things right than it gets wrong i mean it has tablet computers it has people jogging in space there's stuff that like it's easy to notice the stuff it gets wrong because it sticks out the stuff that it gets right you just kind of assume well that was that's obvious we see that all the time like you don't you don't even think of it as being innovative or interesting because it's just like you're used mm-hmm. to seeing images of astronauts jogging in space but people weren't used to seeing images of astronauts jogging in space back then they kubrick and clark had to surmise that that's what they would do so this movie actually gets a ton of stuff right it's also just one of those things where did it did it predict it or did it create it because a lot of just the whole design of how we live now, Apple design, I should say, like like sleek modernist kind of futurist design comes from 2001. So Futura type typeface, everything that goes into making Apple look like Apple is coming out of 
the aesthetic of movies mm. like 2001. And Kubrick really wanted to create an aesthetic of the future. And he did. And the future, some of the future has actually been derived by that. In the same way that people say our, our tablet computers are based around what people thought looked cool in Minority Report more than what would actually work. You know, if you've read those articles, 2001 is kind of the same thing. Like it, 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 it used Futura type, sans serif type faces. And therefore, when Steve Jobs wanted to make his technology feel kind of cool and space age, he used those typefaces. And now that's what we think of as cool and space age and nifty new technology uses those kinds of typefaces. Hmm. So Kubrick makes this movie, releases it to much derision. And then within a year, it's caught on and people love it. And the critical establishment very quickly comes around on it and it becomes hailed as a classic sci-fi movie. The moon landing happens and everybody watches it on grainy, nasty little 13-inch TVs in black and white. Meanwhile, you have this expansive space movie that feels is in bold color and on a big screen and feels really realistic and it plays for a long time and is hugely influential. Okay, so Ben, are you ready to talk your way through... Oh. You know it. This film? Yes. I anticipated what you were going to say because I was in another dimension, Ethan. You were? Yeah. Was it a dimension That's of... That's why I could answer you before you finished Seeing it. like drone footage of Arizona that has like a video filter over it. As it... How did you know that? <laughs> Are you in the other dimension with me? <laughs> no, that's what that's what other dimensions look like according to 2001. What in the world? Oh, ah, man, I'm always disappointed by a little bit of the Stargate. I mean, how could you make the Stargate live up to everything that it has to live up to by the time you get to it? But I don't know. I mean, and, and a lot of it's actually pretty cool and does have that transcendent feeling. But then there are those really now, at least, corny shots, I think, of yeah. we're, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. We, but. we are, but let's just, I think that we should, this film maybe yeah. can let us get ahead of us. Yeah, we're jumping through time. I, we're going through our own Stargate. That's that's right. And if you haven't seen this movie yet, listener, sorry, it will be more confusing for you. But if you have, you'll know what we're talking about. So I would say that all of those filter drone shots you're talking about, they do look, I guess, corny. But I mean, it, from, what, we have... What is it? Forty, fifty years of film now, so it feels like an '80s music video, or yes. so it's like we've seen. I've I've had devices that have let me apply that filter, like just push right. a button, and suddenly that filter. Yeah, I know, I know. That's what I was thinking too. But uh, I, what I, what I respect is that it's just more hardcore when Kubrick does it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> he just keeps going and going and going and going and going. And I like that he is. He's just that sequence is all about. It's not just about what the guy is seeing. It's about how his mind can't actually process what he's seeing. And so right. he's rendering it in terms of landscapes that he understands. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to do, especially at that pitch yeah. <laughs> of expression. Like, here's something that's beyond the human mind to visualize. Let me visualize it for you. Well, you're going you're gonna to push it. Do, do the best you can with images and... And then Im later images that rely on your images are going to make people think that what you did was corny. Yeah, I don't know what else you would do. It is one of those things that's just like you are trying to express the inexpressible. And 
I'm trying to think of similar things. I, I can't name the movie, but like, like for example, in uh, what's that Star Wars movie with the Ryan Johnson one, Last Jedi, when he's yeah. he's teaching Ray about the Force and he's saying like it it, it is in every molecule and he's he's kind of getting at this idea of a transcendent life force and you have these shots of like worms in the ground and grass growing real fast and this kind of cool montage. It's a very weird, atypical Star Wars thing. I don't know if you even remember it. You might not if you only saw the movie once when it oh, was... Oh, weird. No, I don't remember this. And I would think that I would, because I like that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of other things like that. <laughs> sure. Here's, here's, here's one. Actually, this just popped into my head. If you were going to... I don't know that anyone does, but some people are big fans of The Fountain by mm-hmm. Darren Aronofsky. Sure. That is a similarly... Well, it's not, maybe not quite as it's not quite as ambitious, and it's ambitious, and it's about different things. Yeah, it's in fact, it's not really. It's not about technology, actually, but it, it, it's about transcendence right. for sure. And I don't think it's as good a movie, but it does. It is ambitious and visually ambitious, and tries to give you all of these weird abstract ideas through montage and right. stuff. I've never seen it. I've been kind of out on the whole Aronofsky thing since <laughs> Requiem for a Dream, which was a movie that hit me like a ton of bricks when I was a certain age. Right, I, which I which I never saw, and I'm happy to never have seen it, and yeah. never will. I mean, it's um, not, it's, if you want to see how terrible drugs are, then that movie makes sure you understand how terrible drugs are. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't like Aronofsky. Yeah, um, in any case. Yeah, in any case, The Fountain. Yeah, The Fountain. The other thing I'm thinking of that sort of relates just in terms of actually achieving a pitch of transcendence for a few minutes at least are certain sequences in good old Terry Malick's Tree of Life. I'm thinking particularly of the Lacrimosa there we go. sequence with, the, yeah. I guess it's the creation of the universe or something like that, but you see all this big cosmic stuff Yeah, which, is, which is a gorgeous sequence. It's a gorgeous sequence, and the music, he chose a, a cue a piece of modern classical music that That's right. really does a lot of heavy lifting. Arvo Pear, I think. Yeah, that yeah. Bulgarian or Lithuanian. Sorry, I don't know what nationality Arvo Pear is. Yeah, I some, I could find some out. European mm-hmm. something or other. But yeah, you see images of these big cosmic kind of ink blotty kind Estonian. of Estonian. Ah, that's right. I, 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 yeah, I knew yeah. it was something, mm-hmm. something like that. Right. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I even brought that up, except for just as a. There's another guy trying to do something that cosmic, and maybe that's the most successful one that I've seen, actually, in terms of plugging me into something. Well, Tree of Life, back in the day, was a movie I saw like probably four or five times. Loved it. Would have called it maybe my favorite movie. Now, I don't know. I I might, someday, I imagine, I'll go back to it, but I feel like I kind of outgrew it, and who knows? I think it's easy to outgrow, especially because of well, we're not, it's, this is not a Tree of Life podcast, but that beach scene, heaven at the end is so lame. I, I really like that beach scene. I know, I do, I do too, but I think there's something pretty wrong with it. Like, well, it's, it's pretty immature, ultimately. Yeah, they, okay, you're, you're probably right. I guess we shouldn't try to litigate this now. <laughs> if you want to make your one tree of life point before we move on, No, I'm, I'm good, I'm good, I'm well, good. Uh, folks, maybe one day we will... <sighs> do a podcast on Tree of Life. Would you like that? Tell us. Tell us. I think I would like that. Yeah, I think I would too. <laughs> but if, if listeners are like, what? Tree of Life? Yes! Yes! Then, <laughs> then of course we'll do it. So uh, if that's what's, if you dropped your phone because you're so excited about the idea of us doing Tree of Life. Yeah, well, um, the, well the, 
the one thing that I'll say about Tree of Life is that for all that it's abstract and stuff, it is way easier to parse than 2001. Yeah, Tree of Life, like you, you by Tree the end of life it, explains like, everything. And and if you're not like a film nerd, you you may not think it explains everything. But if you pay attention, if you if you treat if you treat his visuals, Terrence Malick's visuals, his images, like I'm explaining to you what I'm thinking in the progression of the theme mm-hmm. with with this image, then I'm going to explain it with that image. You realize he's actually, in that sense, he's very we could say prosy. Mm-hmm. Actually, <laughs> yeah, like here's an image of despair. Uh, Kubrick is not that simple. Yeah, Terrence Malick is like one of those poems that you read in high school where it's like, there is one layer of meaning that like, oh, the raven means death. Like you, 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 you do That's have to make right. that one connection. But once you've made it, you yeah. understand the entire poem. Yeah. Whereas Kubrick is more like one of those poems where, and I don't know what poet this would be, but you look at it, like, like a T.S. Eliot or something, you read it and you're like, I understand all these words and There's, I understand the images that they're right. conjuring. But I have no idea right. why he put all these together or what it's supposed to all add up to, except for when I hear something like, I will show you fear in a handful of dust. Right. It evokes a feeling. Actually, that, that might be, I think that that might be a good, a good comparison. Because Eliot, uh, and uh, no comparison is perfect, Eliot's actually a little easier than Kubrick, because I would say, Eliot, you can always understand his mood. Right. <laughs> Whatever, whatever that flavor is, even if you can't name it, you're like, okay, I kind of get what you feel. Once you want me to feel Kubrick, <clears throat> Kubrick, I think is the same, but Kubrick is colder than Elliot. He's more of an intellectual and He's, uh, yeah. less of a... And, and it's more like Kubrick wants to be distant from his own humanity, which I think we can talk about. Yeah, well, we, we will get to the part where we talk about the gr- those great characters, Dave and Frank. Yeah. And I think that'll be a good place to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't actually know always what you're supposed to feel during 2001. I mean, I guess you know you're supposed to feel some grandeur and awe of some type, but there's places where the movie seems to be intentionally making you feel less, holding you back, yeah, not letting you just enter into it in the same way that another filmmaker. If you want a really instructive comparison point, uh, it's not a great movie, but AI by Steven Spielberg, where he took Kubrick's notes and script and made mm-hmm. a his idea of a Kubrick movie, and <laughs> so unlike a Kubrick movie, and it's so unlike a Kubrick movie. Even though you can imagine, you wouldn't have to change the script at all. I don't think to have a Kubrick movie. It's just that Spielberg is such a warm humanist filmmaker who plugs you into the emotions of his characters that it's it's just like it doesn't feel anything like the way that. Stanley Kubrick would actually do it. I always hated AI for that reason. I hated it too. And I especially hated the ending because it seems so wonky and sentimental to me. He gets to spend one last day with his mom or uh-huh. whatever. And, and then I read a, a treatise of some type that said, and sorry, folks, this podcast is all over the place. Well, yeah. we're going to get into 2001 in two seconds. I read a treatise that says that actually AI is the most brutally mean and depressing movie of all time. You've got this broken little robot boy who just wants love, and these aliens, in their weird, cold, experimental way, are going to bring back his mom for one day, and then he's going to spend eternity mourning her. This is a doesn't he die? They they like shut him off. He kind of goes to sleep or something like that. But but they were just like, this is not 
there's nothing. Spielberg might have some lilting piano music that makes you feel kind of sentimental to you, but this is a really cold, nasty. Well, it sounds to me like that treatise is correct about Kubrick's take, but I don't know if Spielberg knew that. Yeah, it's, well, like I said, it would be an interesting counterpoint, but we've got to talk about 2001. All right, all right, all right. (laughs) So we start with the alignment of the planets, this credit sequence, the famous thus spoke zarathustra who, who wrote richard strauss yeah piece dun 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 and that's one of those things where it's like a billion commercials a billion parodies a billion you have heard this music so many times and it's always been used in kind of a faux grandeur sort of a way oh bump 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 it's a new cell phone from verizon that's right Uh, (laughs) it's a new it's a new taco from taco (laughs) right exactly that kind of thing right this taco is galactically good and it's just like so so mike i guess my question for you ben is does this opening it's just just an opening shot and i think it's supposed to really just like blow you away and root you in this movie and you're and, and given how far special effects have come and given how much this music has been co-opted, which Kubrick co-opted it, but as, as, as many critics have pointed out, Kubrick is one of the only filmmakers who can choose a piece of source music and then actually elevate it. Like I think Roger Ebert in his review says, think about the William Tell overture and think about how you can't listen to it without thinking of the Lone Ranger and think about how much Hollywood always ruins these pieces of music. And then think about the fact that Kubrick is one of the only filmmakers who chooses and popularizes pieces of classical music and sort of elevates them so that your frame of reference for them is actually bigger and more expansive than it would have been if it wasn't for Kubrick. Like, in a sense, he, he did Strauss a favor by associating his movie with the planets, and then it's not Kubrick's fault that it became associated with galactic tacos. Uh-huh. But my question for you is, does the scene still do anything for you? Does it work? Does it have any kind of grandeur? watching it on your TV all these years down the road well, and all these cultural associations down the road. And not just on my TV. My, because the, I think it's because, I, I don't know what it is, but something between the interface of the older DVD and the older DVD player and the somewhat newer TV means that in order for me to watch the full image, it occupies like, like it's shrunk down <laughs> to a small part of my TV screen. And I could make it, fill the screen by zooming in and missing a ton of the frame, which what is the point if you're going to bother watching something like this right. and treat it as though it's art? So anyway, <laughs> so that's just to say I was watching this tiny version of this film and part of my television mm-hmm. with my wife. And anyway, so the answer is kind of, but I can't tell you if it's because it's doing something or because I can imagine it. I've seen enough movies that I can reconstruct yeah. what it was like. I'm not really sure. I, I see that it has integrity as a thing. Like, it's it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. And it's special. Obviously, we've had so many things like that that are more visually impressive, at least in terms of their visual effects and stuff, that it's just hard to put yourself all the way back there. Mm-hmm. So, kind of. I like what it's doing. I like that sort of abacus effect of the the planets all aligned like that right and yeah i think that's an interesting idea the the idea that as film connoisseurs we actually reconstruct these things or construct them in our brains like sort of as an almost an intellectual exercise like 
This isn't yeah. actually evoking awe right now, but I can imagine the feeling of awe enough that I get it and I like it and I respect it. And I can imagine seeing if 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 this was re-released on IMAX or something and I went and saw it there. And I was thinking of this for the whole Stargate sequence and everything leading up to it too. I, I'm sure it still plays like gangbusters if you just go to a big screen and mm. and really give yourself to it. And I have had the experience, as I'm sure you have, of seeing some of these things. Like I saw Metropolis with a live organ score. Mm. And Metropolis, you know, you watch it now and it, it's pretty, it. it's cool. It's really cool. But also it's a hundred years old now or and, and change, I think. And it's just, it's just not exactly like something new hmm. but you go and you watch it with an organ on a big screen and it does have a kind of raw real elemental power huh. i could i could believe that and i think king kong climbing up that skyscraper i once saw an imax i saw an, one of those 40 minute imax documentaries it was on special effects but it started with an imax version of kong fighting the planes and it was Ooh. awesome it was really like, and, and they didn't like spruce it up. It was just Claymation Kong fighting those silly planes, but it was just so big and the sound was all around you and huh. it really had some kind of raw power. And speaking of raw power, we are now going into the most rawly powerful section of all cinema, the dawn of man. All right. The planet of the ape suits. Uh, what do you think about this sequence, Ben? Oh, let's see. It's hard to watch. You mean like it's boring or? Well, it's not just boring. It's like ugly. It's like, yeah, this is your version of what men are. It's, 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 it's a thumb in God's eye. I think it's just so hostile to God. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, you think you guys, you guys think we're made in God's image. We're just nasty, stupid animals. Mm-hmm. I don't think you really realize the host. I don't know. It's easy to forget the hostility of evolution in an evolutionary perspective and the stupidity and the it's a boring perspective, <laughs> too. It's boring to watch these dumb apes evolve. Mm-hmm. And so it just, I don't know, it's all tainted by that feeling. It's like, oh, this guy hates me. Well, he, th- he hates himself. He hates God, especially. I think Chesterton said, perhaps in The Everlasting Man, that we are, moderns are so stupid because we're willing to accept a miracle as long as it goes really, 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 really monotonously slow. Like the miracle of an ape turning into a man is a miracle no matter right. how you <laughs> cast it. And he's like, you read Genesis and God just took some dirt and he made a man. And everyone's like, oh, I don't believe that. But as long as you make it go really, 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 really slow. <laughs> they're like, yay! <laughs> that's, that's really funny. That's a great observation. It is, well, yeah, it's, I, I think I've heard that, but I'd forgotten it. Uh, so. one, of, one of Chesterton. That guy had a few good observations. I don't he, know. He did. But yeah, it's interesting because I agree with you. I do think it's boring. I do think it's hostile. I think the idea that what made man man is tools, basically, mm-hmm. and tools to dominate mm-hmm. each other and other species with is a pretty mean, small. I mean, I mean, even if you're going to tell the story of a monkey becoming a man, how about it's like he's reaching for the stars and he uh-huh. climbs a mountain. There's got to be something better than. He figures out how to use a bone to smash another monkey. <laughs> yeah. Know, it's like so. And that's all man ever is, is a monkey uh. smashing another monkey. <laughs> <laughs> right. And yet, I do have a certain sense of, I don't want to say awe, that's too much, but I like stories set in the primordial sort of past. Mm-hmm. I, I, I sometimes enjoy caveman stories. There's a 
collection of three short stories or novellas or whatever by the sci-fi author Gene Wolfe, who we both respect a lot, even mm-hmm. though he's weird and crazy and sometimes <coughs> can be pretty perverse. Yeah. But his first collection is called what? I can't pull the title right the now. The Fifth Head of Cerberus. The Fifth Head of Cerberus. And the most famous story in there is actually not the one that... The title story. Is, the title story is great, but then there's this middle story that's just set in this... Alien planet. This crazy primordial alien planet where there's just this kind of caveman-like figure going over this barren landscape, and there's another planet kind of hovering in the sky that he can look up at, and there's these weird stars. And and there's like aliens and some kind of demon stuff. Right. There's a monster that he may or may not change places with at the end. It's really crazy. It's it's impossible to describe if you haven't read it. (laughs) Yeah, it is crazy. (laughs) But I love it. It might be my favorite sci-fi story, actually, one of my favorite fantasy stories. It just has that feeling of, of sort of ancient, transcendent awe kind of stuff. And we just watched together over the uh, the July 4th weekend, we watched The Good Dinosaur, which is a very weird movie with like Western uh, wrestlers, dinosaurs <laughs> and stuff like that. It's really weird. But it also does have a little bit of that like primordial, primordial dinosaurs in a world before man. And right. I find myself responding to that for some reason. And I'm like, what am I responding to? Because I don't believe that that's actually an accurate view of history. I don't believe that that sort of thing ever actually existed, at least the way it's shown in these kinds of mm-hmm. properties. But there must be something there. I mean, there's something that in my right. in my sort of Jungian unconsciousness, I, I, I do, yeah. I am like, they're touching something. So what are they touching? Well, I think they're touching, what was it like for man to realize everything is new and I have to figure it out? What was it like for Adam? Yeah. What these movies don't have is they don't have God there <laughs> mm-hmm. so that Adam could know, would know what, who and what he was. Right. Instantly, from the first moment of creation, even as he realized, whoa, I'm new. I'm, I'm Adam. I'm a man. He, he, he could know that because he knew who God was. Like Calvin says, knowledge of God starts with knowledge of ourselves and knowledge of ourselves starts with knowledge of God and you can't really extricate the two. Well, that's, what's, that's what the first conscious man would have been like. And that's what the development would have been like and but it is it still would have been different than what we have we look back on centuries of men doing things in the world but adam didn't right and his his children didn't look back on i guess they had some central events obviously <laughs> cataclysmic fall and the initial creation but then Everything else had not been done, and they created all this new technology. Yeah, and they were standing on the precipice of like, this is the beginning of history. What what shall we make with this world? There is that feeling that right. I'm sure they had. And, and after the fall, you do have the reality of mankind looking out at a hostile world and having to figure out how to navigate it and... <coughs> So I guess I guess there is actually a period of history that yeah that did happen that that is not unlike some of these stories yeah in their way yeah but, but never as sort of groveling and animalistic as no it's like man was always man and he always had dignity and he yeah. always had a sense of his own dignity and a sense of his own ability to conquer nature even at great cost it's like you read Genesis and it's like they're making tools they're making instruments they're building civilization quickly actually it's not 
just like how do I so, how do I outrun the leopard the right. the primordial leopard creature to get my pelt by the fire kind of thing. Well, I, I will give I will give this to Kubrick. So my my wife is making this observation to me about that sequence, which she really hated yeah. more than me. Don't blame her. Yeah, but it is true that one of the first things, uh, well, the, in the first brotherly relationship there was, one of them killed his brother, mm-hmm. probably using some kind of a tool. Yeah. And so that urge to dominate as soon as Sin entered. <laughs> and then it's, it is, it's Cain's descendants who, here, I'm just going to go to Genesis 4 here. Yeah, Cain, so Genesis 4, 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built the city, so the first city is mm-hmm. a Canaanite, right? Or a Cainite, I guess I right. should say, not Canaan, Cain. When he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born, born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And then Lamech gives his little poem or saying about how I kill people when they make me mad. You know, right. I avenge myself a lot more than Cain did. Right. And so you have this connection between technology and violence. <laughs> right. <laughs> right there. Yeah. And that's that's fascinating. That is fascinating. That is fascinating. And it's probably one of the reasons that we watch a movie like this and we we respond to it. We don't. We might reject it intellectually, but there is still something that we're like, that's getting at something. Like it's it's not it's not just a crazy person. It's not like watching the Danish girl or something, you know, a movie about trans something or other where you're just like, Well, I don't agree with any of the premises of this movie and therefore I feel nothing and have it get nothing out of it besides disgust. It's like you're pretty connected to even if you're bored by it, mm-hmm. you're like, I get what this this is telling me a story or sending this is sending out a signal that I can pick up, which is interesting. Yeah. And yet I I still do resent the whole idea of the whole sort of idea of this movie. He crushes the monkey's skull with a bone and throws it up in the air and then it becomes a space thing and it's right. like the technology and then how it's like the whole theme of the movie is technology has always been a double-edged sword it allows us to do wonders and it also allows us to give in to our worst impulses well yeah even every in every part of the movie technology is all about it's all a tool of domination even the way that dr haywood is gonna he's gonna give his his speech which is to the scientists which is just nope shut up like this is we're we're gonna do everything with this we need to do to have power and Mm -hmm. the american flag is standing in the background that it's very subtle but it's very clear that kubrick is thinking of nations use technology to wield power especially when you combine nations. it with the scene of him sitting down with the other people before he goes into the conference and they're like can you give us some information dr haywood and he's like well sorry old chat i guess he's not british but he's <laughs> <laughs> just like no <laughs> that's right I'm, I'm not at liberty to talk about that that's right yeah which which okay technology is a double-edged sword but there is something perhaps post-mill in me that wants to say, like, God told us to fill the earth and subdue it. Like, I, I don't think a movie like this that quite captures it. Yes, of course, man is depraved, and therefore anything that we do is going to come with 
a cost in sin and in brokenness. And yet the tools that we build ourselves are good and they are a blessing from God. And the cities that we build ourselves are good. And the new Jerusalem is going to be a city. It's not, what we're not doing is working our way back towards some sort of Edenic paradise that's just devoid of technology, devoid of earth subduing, devoid of tools. That's, that was never God's purpose from the beginning of creation, and it wasn't his purpose after the fall. And so while Kubrick does get at something about man's depravity and about the corruption of, of our tools, I think even that I, I resent his atheistic, cynical paganism. Well, I think Kubrick, Kubrick would say that you have to, Kubrick would be more like a pastor stew, in my opinion, from our, from our Ville show listener. If you haven't listened to that, Pastor Stu's a villain. But Pastor Stu's all about embracing your inner darkness. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Kubrick believes that to some extent. Yeah. Embrace your inner darkness. And that's how you transcend it. Yeah. Transcend it as you embrace it. Yeah. Well, what he almost might do is say the whole construct of inner darkness is the wrong one because it's actually, there are bigger forces that are beyond our conceptions of good or evil that are at work. And that's what we really have to understand about our existence. I mean, the monolith, I guess we can talk about it because it's showing up about Mm -hmm. where we're talking about. Yeah, It is this impersonal force of, of what? Of transcendence, of growth, of evolution, of it shows up every time man's supposed to take the next step. And I suppose it represents God or some kind of vastly superior Alien intelligence a- alien that's intelligence. depositing its own technology. Right. Which which begs the question, to what ends? Right. What is, why? What do these aliens want? Right. And the movie is has, I don't think, any interest in answering that oh, question. Oh, no, not at all. I, I bet Clark's book does. Yeah, I wondered about that. You know Clark better than I have. You've actually read him. Well, I, I haven't. I remember, I read a little bit about the development of this movie, and I know that that Clark wrote his book at the same time, basically like as they, as he and Kubrick were developing the screenplay, Clark was writing the book and Kubrick was making the movie or it's some form of that. Right. And the book is just going to explain everything because that's Clark. Right. Clark's going to explain most everything. And Kubrick is not. And I, I think the plots diverge some partly because of that, but I, I feel sure that Kubrick is just going to, well, the reason that the aliens did it was, was this and they did this and that and, Said, that's word. what Clark was. I'm just sure. Yeah. I mean, Clark is so. I like this word, prosy. Mm-hmm. Clark is not. Clark is not interested in like artistically not hiding things from you. Yeah, he's just going to tell you. Yeah, like the plot reasons mm-hmm. in a very maybe boring way. Well, one of the things that Clark said about working with Kubrick is we would often reach a compromise. Stanley's. <laughs> And so <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny, <laughs> which is, I think, what a lot of people would say about working with Kubrick. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I imagine he probably did just go and put whatever he his opinion was into the novel because he sure wasn't so. he wasn't going to get anything by Kubrick that Kubrick wasn't no. interested in. It, it is fascinating to me that Kubrick as a creator and that pagans in general would. And this is, I suppose, is a very broad statement. It applies to many of the world's great religions. People really like the idea of an impersonal creator. Like they they respond to that. And as a Christian, it's hard for me to wrap my head around what's appealing about that. Like the entire thing that I love about the actual God, our God, is that he is our father and he is person. Can I just say relationships are messy? Yeah. I and mean, I'm not trying to be crass towards our God 
who is the absolute person, mm. but you you have to deal with his judgment seat. Right. And an impersonal creator is like a relief. I mean, it's also it's like evil a, and stupid. and It's a horrible Lovecraftian. It's like, I'd rather be smashed in the gears of an impersonal deity. Like, I, if I have a choice, I'd rather be ground to dust by something that's impersonal that just does what it does. And doesn't care about me. And doesn't care one way or another than have to face the personality of an actual God and his right. wrath and judgments, which is just such a, it does make sense. And it is where a lot of people are, but it is such a, when you think about it that way, it's such a nihilistic. It's, it's, it is pure rebellion yeah. in its, in its conception. Yeah. <laughs> it's running from everything we know to be true about ourselves, about our creator, but there you have it. Yeah. Well, any, anything else to say about the monolith before we, I think it is just impersonal agency of, some other force. Some other, yeah, it's just some transcendent force. Some transcendent force. Uh, yeah. and, and it's very intentional that it is such a boring symbol. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful symbol, but it's like there's, there's no personality to it. It does not look like anything. It's just a black rectangle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, it is amazing. The only thing it does, uh, being a rectangle and not a square, being upright and not flat, is it points up. Mm -hmm. It points up and out. Right, and oftentimes it'll be framed with the sun or, or some other mm -hmm. symbol of transcendence and the divine framed behind it or kind of absorbed that's, into it or coming out of it or whatever. That's right, until the final sequence where it's spinning and flying through space as though to indicate this is the final journey. Like there's no up anymore, like you're here. And that's the point at which the astronaut enters the Stargate, and now we're getting ahead of ourselves, I guess. Right. Yeah, it's hard not to come back to that Stargate, just just like Dave. It's hard yeah. not to come back to the Stargate. Just like me, it's hard not to come back to the movie <laughs> right. Stargate with Kurt Russell, <laughs> yes, which, which for a time was like my favorite movie as a teenager. We've all traveled through that, that chaotic that <laughs> piece of transcendence <laughs> and found ourselves old and <laughs> wasted in an empty house. <laughs> yeah. You know, I will say, I wish more Christian filmmakers or filmmakers that handle biblical stories would take a page out of Kubrick's portrayal of the divine. Like I would actually love it if the 10 commandments was had as much drew as much of a veil around transcendence as mm -hmm. Kubrick does. Like he's he's like actually I can't show you a superior intelligence. I can't conceive of a superior intelligence because I'm just a normal intelligence. Like it, it, there's a certain amount of humility that Kubrick has in that in a weird way. It's like I I can and, and I know they tried as for the Dave the final creepy house scene at the end post Stargate before Dave becomes the star child they they did want to have an alien and they just were like we can't wrap our heads around how to portray superior intelligence all we can do is show a monolith we can't pull the veil back on that right um, you compare it to Spielberg's Close Encounters yeah I don't know Spielberg is just going to be you could say crass. Oh, sure, here's the aliens. They're like you, except they're different. But they're basically just people. Yeah. I mean, Close Encounters never should have had the aliens get out of the ship or shown them. I, I think what you the, the, the proper way to do Close Encounters, in my humble opinion, and uh, number of hit blockbuster movies made by me, zero, number made by Spielberg, many, but is to have the ships come down, have the doors open up, have the light spill out, have our characters all go ooh and ah, and then not really go from there because there is actually something disappointing about seeing the aliens like they can never be as as cool and transcendent and otherly as you actually want them 
Although Spielberg gets something when the little one comes out. And yeah, and they... There's something. Uh, is, if anybody's going to do it, it's him. <sighs> oh, I hate that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, I'd much prefer 2001 yeah. to that. I mean, at least 2001 Ugh. knows it's being cold and anti-human. <laughs> Most Spielberg encounters doesn't. Thinks, <laughs> thinks it's being humanistic. All right, that monkey's gonna... He's been inspired by superior intelligent he's gonna beat that other monkey to death thus spoke there the zarathustra play again yeah. nietzsche of course wrote the book thus spoke spake there zarathustra based on an old prophet zoroaster or zarathustra and nietzsche is all about the uberman becoming man becoming something more becoming the superman becoming Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of nietzschean ideas in this movie and that piece of music is an intentional Nod to that, I think. Yep. So now we're going into the, one of the most famous sequences from the movie, the balloon to noob scene, the place where a lot of people, I think, probably these days checked out completely. They've, they've made it through the monkeys. It's like, okay, every movie has to have a boring intro, but now we get to the plot. Uh, no, no, you don't. <laughs> Plot's not coming for a while. First, we've got to see the dance of <laughs> these spaceships, the cosmic irony of... A waltz, but it's not two waltzers in a da- in a ballroom. It's spaceships waltzing around a planet or something like. That. I, I don't know. What do you think about this sequence, Ben? I kind of love it. Yeah, yeah, I basically do. Just as a piece of cinema. Yeah, a... yeah, I think it's very effective. It's very beautiful. I mean, if you're in the wrong mood, you'll just be bored. Yeah, I I don't deny it. But I was in the right mood, and I was like, eh, it's it's very. Precisely choreographed. It's a very slow dance, mm-hmm. but it's successful. It's good musically. It's good visually. It's cool. It's it's interesting enough to watch different things in space move and then go into the ship and watch the pen have its own little rotation in the air. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of scenes in this movie and in Kubrick's oeuvre in general where it feels like He's just looking at us with a malicious God's eye view, like we're ants under a telescope or uh, ants under a telescope. That's great. <laughs> ants under, <laughs> yes. Ants. I think that's the name of our new book on Kubrick. Yes. Ants, ants under, under a, a telescope. telescope. Ants under a microscope. And it's just kind of this dispassionate. But there is also the grandeur of a God's eye view of, hey, actually, spaceship planets are waltzing around each other and spaceships are waltzing around each other. And there is something beautiful about that. Yeah. Actually, it's all a dance. And the scene get at that gets at that. I just also think there's something tactile about it, like that you don't you you watch some you know you watch season two of the Mandalorian and you're just not in touch with the fact that traveling through space would be big and cool and wonderful, and it's just nice to see spend some time. It's what's one of the things that I find insulting about Interstellar. They're like. Hey, we need to go to Jupiter and fix humanity's problems. And then you just cut to the spaceship and they're like halfway there or something. Like, no, I want to see like <laughs> spaceshipy stuff. I want to feel like I'm on the spaceship. I don't just want to cut to the middle of it. And all, all the hands and music in the world can't connect me to that if the movie doesn't actually just spend some time there. Even if it's, it is monotonous. Right. And there are sections like the water planet where they lose all the years and stuff like that that I like of Interstellar, but I'm not, well, like maybe I am an Interstellar hater. I was pretty disappointed by that movie, but <laughs> we're not here to litigate inter- Interstellar. I, I don't know. And how many movies do you watch where people go to the jungle and it just doesn't feel sweaty or where they 
fire guns and you just don't f- smell the sulfur. It's like, I like movies that put you in touch with something in a tactile way and, and yeah. just spending some time with, well, the stewardess has to walk really slowly and there's the guy and he's falling asleep and his pen is floating and she's going to put it back for him. Stuff like that really puts you in touch with what space, this sort of space age world would be. And I like that. So we've got this big section with Dr. What's his name? Haywood. Dr. Haywood, Haywood Smith, Haywood, I think Haywood Smith is a comedian. Doctor, I don't know, anything you want to say that we haven't already said about the plot kind of stuff here, the or the world building kind of stuff here? No, I don't think so. That Dr. Haywood Floyd. Haywood Floyd, yeah. No, I guess not. I like like the design. I mean, I think it's cool. Although that that style of design, whatever it's called, is really uncomfortable for someone as big as I am. Like, I would not be happy in the world of 2001 because those chairs just wouldn't be very comfortable for me. So, yeah, it's kind of like, I like spare, sparse, modernist design. But I do not. But I I enjoy it, but I I wouldn't want to live in any of these spaces. Yeah. And I don't think those people would too because in this future, they'll have greater bone density and better nutrition and <laughs> they'll grow taller and bigger and yeah. they, they won't want to sit on weird red Art Deco chairs. Look like balloon animals. <laughs> that look like balloon animals. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What's, I think the style of the people, not, not, not the style of their clothes, but the style of the characters, like the way that they talk, it's like a 60s TV show. Yes, it is. And I think Kubrick knew that and he was like... Here's, I'll give you just, I'll let the actors act just enough that you basically believe that they're people. But also, this, the, the whole mode of everything they do is going to be in the style of a 60s television show where everything's a little unnatural and artificial. Just very deliberate, the way. It, the only people who aren't like that are the foreigners that Dr. Haywood talks with very yeah. briefly. And it's weird that he did that. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know if he's saying that's... <laughs> he feels very much in control of it. It does feel like a stylistic choice. I watched a few clips, not from like the scary stuff, but just the, the setup stuff of The Shining where Jack Nicholson's yeah. touring the hotel and stuff. I just wanted to remember some of that stuff going into this. And it actually has a lot of that that weirdness to it. And again, it feels very intentional. The guy's like... I do hope that it won't scare you to be in a hotel where a man murdered his family. And Jack Nicholson's like, as for my wife, she'll be absolutely fascinated. She's a confirmed horror film addict or something. And it's like Jack Nicholson already has a weird Jack Nicholson delivery. But then there's something kind of corny and stilted about the way it's written and the way it's performed on both ends. And, And I don't know. I mean, maybe it is just Kubrick not understanding people and choosing those takes but i don't think but i don't think so either i think it's he wants to put you at a weird ironic angle to to what's going on and i don't know exactly what's going through his head in in some of the choices he's making but he wants to dehumanize everything or maybe that's not the word but i think you may be right it's all the people who are in power who are the coldest right like Dr. Haywood floyd like his daughter is sweet and seems like a real little girl an Mm -hmm. actual little girl that they just happened to film somehow right and then in that one video call where he talks with her and then he's like i don't know he's just like a almost a normal guy ish Mm -hmm. but colder (coughs) colder (coughs) (coughs) but colder than the foreigners and then dave and frank (laughs) good old dave and frank yes 
American heroes or whatever they are. And and that one call with Dave's parents is so weird. Yeah. It's so like unnatural. And they're the ones who are who have the dominant technology and who Dave's going to eject Frank into space so that he can get back in. Yeah. Which you know on some level he doesn't like even even with as much acting as Kubrick lets him give, but also he's just going to make all these cold calculated decisions. Yeah, it's like the thing that Gene Roddenberry and his successors have wanted to romanticize, the kind of cold, scientific, prime directive Star Trek. We're all working for the greater good, and all of humanity's problems have been solved, and all disease. So now we just go around and benevolently kind of impose our will on the universe in a way that we pretend like it's not imposing our will on the universe because it's all very liberal. It's like Kubrick is actually portraying the same kind of world, but he, he's, he's, he's got a much more cynical angle on it. He's like, yeah, these people are all kind of stilted and weird and tamped down, and it's almost like they're living in Soviet Russia or something like that. Like, they're all kind of speaking a code or That's right. using a language that they don't quite understand. Like, they've all been taught to talk this way, they, to act they, this They've way. all been taught to, to dominate or be dominated. Yeah. And it's been successful. Who, whoever has the bone, just submit. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think The Shining is actually similar. It's like we have all these people who have been basically possessed by the hotel, and they're just like, well, Mr. Torrance, let me show you around. We've got 12 hunks of meat, and you'll never have to eat the same. They just all kind of feel like puppets, and it adds to the creepy ambiance of the movie but it is it does exist in a kind of weird cartoonish which you're actually make, which you actually made me th- think of when you pointed that out was early conan Cohen brothers films like raising arizona or stuff yeah or big uh, not big lebowski the one with paul newman hudsucker proxy oh, yeah. where it's just like I hate hudsucker proxy. why are these people talking like this what world is this who says things like this like who are these people and eventually you realize oh they just live in some weird Coen Brothers universe where everybody talks like that and acts like that. And, and is it is it comedy? Is it drama? Is it cynical? Is it Do they cheerful? love these people? Do they hate these people? Yes. It's, yes. <laughs> the answer is yes, <laughs> yes to all those questions. Right. And I think Kubrick is is similar here in a, in a subtler way. Yeah. Do you like the fact that we never really get a clear summation of the plot? <laughs> I mean, I guess Dr. Haywood <clears throat> Floyd basically tells us what the monolith what we should know, but then we're going to cut to the Jupiter mission and it's going to take a while to kind of, we're, we're going to have to get the details from his parents' stupid birthday message and, or from the newscast that they see some, it's, it's like, we're never, that's right. We're never just going to have somebody say, let me lay this all out for you. Yeah. No, I don't mind. I don't mind at all. It makes the movie more interesting. It's just the movie doing all it can to signal to you. I don't care about this exactly. I mean, I care in the sense that you have to know enough for me to hang this on, but right. It's just not about. Well, and it, it, it's it's if you want to see why people like me and Ben sometimes look down our noses a little bit at somebody like Christopher Nolan, it's because of this. Because he aspires to this kind of thing, and people are like, "Yes, he builds a perfect puzzle box." But then you watch Inception, which is a good movie. I, I like Inception, but it's just like so. Uh, it is. It is incredibly over-explained. Yeah, it's just like. Let me lay out the rules of what it is to be in a dream. Now let me repeat the rules of what it is to be a dream. Now let me give you, like, the whole first half of that movie is just 
Ellen Page or Thomas Hardy or whoever the exposition dump person is, just like explaining and explaining and explaining and explaining. And at a certain point, that takes away from the whole wonder of being able to do a dream heist. I want dream heists to feel a little dreamy. And if there's too many rules, then and too much explanations, then it's not like a dream. I mean, it's with Nolan, it's always going to be an engineer's version of a dream. Yeah. He's going to engineer, Kubrick engineered everything, but he, he engineered in a different way. He engineered by, he left, he left as much to the intelligence of the viewer as he could. Right. In any movie of his you watch. It doesn't matter if you hate his movies or not. I think that's just true. And he was very smart about what information he didn't give you. Like he... I always feel like he probably, in his engineerish way, does have the answers. Like, he knows exactly who yeah. the monolith is. In The Shining, he knows, like, has, has Jack Nicholson been absorbed back into the hotel at the end? Has he gone into the past? We end on that weird photograph. It's, right. like, it's like, I think, is Danny seeing real visions? Like, like, are these just visions or are these actual ghosts? Like, I think Kubrick actually does have the answers to all those questions. Unlike some filmmakers who just wouldn't even know themselves i think kubrick does actually know every answer to every question he's just very selective about what he wants to give us and smart i think he 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 knows what will allow our our imaginations the most play and enjoyment in terms of what he denies us i mean sometimes not giving the audience the answer is the better answer and christopher mm-hmm. nolan knew that in his most famous moment it's no fun if the top falls down or if the top stays up you just gotta cut away from it like the answer is we don't know that's the whole and and the answer is who cares leonardo dicaprio's made his his own happiness and if it's a dream you know it's like Mm -hmm. that's good but christopher nolan has never been able to make himself do that ever again even in places where he should have like whether Mm -hmm. batman's alive at the end of dark night rises and snob 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 christopher nolan's terrible (laughs) <laughs> etc etc all right we're meeting frank and dave who's right. your who's your favorite of you are you more of a frank man or more of a dave man and ben dave and dave yeah and yeah, he's, he's he's the one who survives yeah frank kind of well frank has my least favorite section in all of cinema which is brilliant but i just feel so claustrophobic where oh <laughs> he's in that suit with the breathing and stuff like that and it just goes on and on you mean and when on. when hal kills him when hal kills him yeah well, doesn't he go out twice does he, he goes out once to or is it dave he goes out once to, to think, check out the satellite I or whatever. I think Dave goes out the first time and Hal the second. But no, I, that, that can't be right. I'm not sure. I mean, I they're think, such great memorable characters. We really should be able to remember who I, did what. But I bet it's Frank who goes out both times. Yeah, I think it is Frank that goes out both times. But uh, yeah. Would you like this movie better? Or would this be a better movie if Frank and Dave had some, some personality? No, because they wouldn't fit in the rest of the movie. Yeah. I think you're it right. It just wouldn't make any sense. You'd, the whole movie would have to be a different movie for them to have more personality. Yeah. Yeah, you can't be the one person that is a normal person in Raising Arizona or Hudsucker Proxy. That no. Then you're just like, who, who is this person? What, what are they doing here? That's Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think we have to be willing for movies to do other things than thrill us in the same old narrative. Like, yeah, 90% of the time when I go and see a movie, it's because I want to see great characters have great dialogue, but I have to be willing for a movie to want to do something else. And this just happens to be an example of a movie that has no interest in doing that. It's not like it's trying to have great characters and failing or trying to have great dialogue and failing. Mm-hmm. It's achieving exactly what it wants to. You may not like what it's achieving, but you, you, you shouldn't be like, well, Frank and Dave weren't very interesting. Kubrick failed. 
right? Kubrick would be the first person to tell you that Frank and Dave aren't interesting. Yeah, he doesn't want them to be interesting. Exactly. But HAL 9000, he wants HAL to be interesting. He's got some sympathy for HAL. And I've got some sympathy for HAL. I love HAL. (laughs) Forgive me for being so inquisitive, Frank. (laughs) He's got that kind of evil butler energy. (laughs) I really really like it. He really does. It's creepy. (laughs) It's pretty creepy. It is Kubrick's sense of humor coming out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Kubrick loves the joke that the most human character and the one who gets the kind of an affecting, effective death scene is this stupid, monotonous computer yeah. program that may or may not have any kind of consciousness in the way that we understand it, which is another thing that he has no, no real interest in answering. I mean, is Hal, is Hal human? Does it matter? I, I mean, I think what's, yeah, what's fun about Hal, of course, what's fun about all the AI stuff is not knowing mm-hmm. exactly it's a mystery. Like, what is it? It kind of gets to the mystery of what is it to be conscious. Right. Anyway, and could we create another consciousness, another person? That's a sci fi question that writers have been dealing with for a long time. As old as the hills. As old as the hills of <laughs> Mars. Sil- silicon. Yes. Yeah, as old as the hills of Silicon. Valley. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, it, it's fun. And Hal is fun that way. Yeah, it's a trope. Data from Star Trek and Johnny Five. I don't know if Johnny Five is actually a good example, but I don't even know what that is. Uh, oh, not batteries not included. Oh, see that? wow, yeah, classic. I used to love that as a classic. Kid. It doesn't I, isn't his name Johnny Five. By I have the no end. idea. I, I don't know. It's a terrible, terrible movie. It really is. But yeah, people love the whole robot sentient the terminator terminator 2 has a lot of fun with now i understand what it means to i can't do an arnold but now i know why you cry yeah 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 oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man uh yeah and i like that stuff I, I think what i like about robot stories is the same thing that i like about dorothy's friends and wizard of oz the scarecrow tin man and uh, what's the other one cowardly lion it's like you can take these characters and strip away everything that's extraneous and just ask one question. Like, what does it mean to be cur- courageous? That's the only thing that's interesting about the lion is he's cowardly and he needs courage and maybe he already has it. And But there's no other real character. And what does it mean to have a heart? And what does it mean to have a brain? <laughs> right. It's like if you have these characters where you can kind of just take out all the other variables and then you can kind of ask interesting questions. And as to whether maybe some Christians get tangled up in, well, could we actually create consciousness? The answer is no. But right. that doesn't mean it, it's, it's not a fun. I mean, for me, it's just like, no. Okay, now I'm going to enjoy my sci-fi movie that's going to ask some fun questions surrounding that and not be bothered in the least by, although maybe I should be bothered because we live in a society that is increasingly crazy postmodern and transhumanist. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that creating consciousness, well, I'm not going to say consciousness, is creating programs or bots that mimic human consciousness is, it already does suck people in. I just, I don't know if you read that an article that I shared to our, I shared it to our Discord. Mm-hmm. Listener, if you want to be part of the Sound of Sanity Discord, which, which is, it, you know, that encompasses Sound of Sanity and Sanity at the movies and what else does it encompass? Anyway, it yeah. encompasses things. Yeah. What do you have to do, Nathan, to get be part of that Discord? I think that's over on patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity to sign up there. Although maybe we should start a, a movies Discord for sanity at the movies. I've certainly thought about it. And oh, really? If, if, you're, if cool. you're a fan of this podcast and you'd like that, then let us know. But uh, cool. in any case, you posted this article. I posted an article about how mm, this guy was saying, well, it, it's, it's 
and was it an article? It was a Twitter thread. That's right. It was a long Twitter thread that <laughs> functions like an article. Mm-hmm. And he was saying AI has failed, but what hasn't failed is that you can create, is it programs using human data, which a, a bajillion companies have been mining for years and years to figure out how do humans respond? How do they give emotional cues? What, you know, what kind of things do they say to indicate to other people that they're people and that they're tracking? We could just have bots mimic that. Right. He's saying that's actually what's happening. It's not that you have a program that actually understands and has its own consciousness. You have a program that can mimic, though, based on a ton of human data and is always being fed fresh human data to keep up with the times. Yeah. And I think that's really creepy, and that's very plausible, and it makes sense to me that people would be sucked into that. And if you could talk with like a, with like sort of a, a humanized machine puppet, right, then you think of the forthcoming sex bot industry mm-hmm. and all of the stuff. That just makes total sense to me. Yeah, I think that's And that's true. creepy. It's creepy. It's, and then you read the transcript of the guy that got fired mm-hmm. from Microsoft or Apple or whatever it Google. was. Google, yeah. The guy who d- decided that a certain program had gone, <laughs> had achieved sentience. And you read his conversation with the program, and I was not convinced that the machine had achieved sentience, but... Yeah, it Lambda. Is am- Lambda. It is amazing how well it emulates human behavior and the kinds of stuff that it says. Like, it is it is creepy. Oh, yeah. It is creepy. And especially when you think about the ways that technology might be used to provide emotional satisfaction or sexual satisfaction to someone outside of the way that God created the, us to get those things. It's a d- profoundly dystopian and disturbing world that we live in, and it's probably only going to get worse. Yeah. My my read on Hal, just to go back to him, yeah. would be whether or not in- Kubrick has the idea that he did achieve consciousness. The My idea would be he's made to learn, and what he learned was <laughs> Hal is itself a product of technology, and it learned violence and domination. Right. And it decided that it was going to be the one on top. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it, Hal also decided to remove the human element. <laughs> That's right. And maybe Hal wasn't wrong. <laughs> of course he was in the morality of the world as God made it. But, but in Kubrick's morality, I, I'm not even sure that Hal was doing anything but protecting the mission. He actually got them there. D- yes, Dave had to shoot, sh- shut him down. And, but, well, okay. But, but here's the thing. I I remember reading a film critic once. I think it was ooh, Alex Jones made, might have been his name. Not Alex Jones, the no, 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 not provocateur. The, no, not the provocateur, not the not the news guy, but a film critic guy who said he was he proposed an interpretation that how represents a stage that humans need to outgrow mm-hmm. a stage of just pure rationality that they need to get beyond. Like how how is how is in some sense, the logical progression of technology, but Hal's also a limiter. Right. And so dismantling Hal is actually a positive step, and that's what allows Dave to go on a voyage that Hal actually couldn't have for some right. reason. And I think that that's, that's interesting, too. Like, like the Hal is as far as we can get in our current iteration, but we need to dismantle Hal before we take the next leap into... Yeah, what you what you need is is more than a perfect chess machine. Right. And so I think that's, that's a pretty interesting interpretation, actually. <coughs> I think it is. And it reminded me of, I think it's the first chapter of Orthodoxy, another great G.K. Chesterton book, 
where he talks about the irrationality of rationality. What he basically says is the sane man allows for things to be mysterious and unknown and even irrational in some sense. Like the sane man says, I don't understand God. I don't actually understand everything about the center of my universe and the universe. But because I'm willing to build a foundation there, I can build a ra- I can build out from that rationally. Mm-hmm. Whereas he says the irrational man, the, the man who's locked up in a loony bin has a perfect closed loop of rational thought. And Chesterton does a better job of explaining this than I do. But basically the idea is he has all the evidence for why he's the king of England and there's a conspiracy against him and that's why he's locked up. And all the things make sense. If you were the king of England and they wanted to suppress you, then they would put you in a loony bin and they would treat you like this. And it's like he actually has an answer for everything. It's just a small closed loop that doesn't – because it's not willing to take all the crazy variables of real life – but it wants to just choose one set of variables and create a rational loop, it becomes insanity. And Hal is like that. Everything that Mm. Hal does is completely rational, given the one variable that Hal has to work with, which is must complete mission at all costs. Mm -hmm. Does Hal understand anything of the greater importance of this mission or of the greater importance of why a human being needs to be there at the end of the, like, there's all kinds of variables uh-huh. that Hal right. is not allowing for, but within his perfect little rational world, it's yeah. not that, like Hal hasn't broken, he's not gone insane, he's just, he, he already, he always was insane, because right. pure rationality is insane. Yeah, Pure rationality doesn't allow for the irrationality that attends the whole human experience. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if I said that in a way that makes any sense at all yeah but yeah yeah i think that's part of what maybe we're getting with hal yeah that's interesting and i love the whole fight with hal is great like the whole yeah him reading the lips right before intermission is in a movie not known for its (laughs) dramatic (laughs) sort of highlights is is a pretty great little uh, oh yeah it's creepy yeah it's really creepy and then all the Without your space helmet, Dave, you're going to find that rather difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Understated menace of how it's pretty. It's pretty great. Pretty great. And then I'm sorry, without answering the question of Hal's consciousness or particularly caring about it, I do feel sorry for Hal when he's dying. I'm afraid. I'm afraid, Dave. My mind is going. I can feel it. I can feel it. (laughs) I'm afraid. Don't stop, Dave. Won't you stop? Please stop. Stop, Dave. I'm all right now, Dave. I had a few problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. <laughs> I love understatement. Understatement is one of my favorite forms of communication. I mean, I love tough guy understatement. We talked about it in Yo Jimbo. You know, you're going to kill us. It'll hurt. That kind of, <laughs> that kind of thing. Oh, um, man. But it really, in some ways, it is the only genuine moment of pathos in the entire movie, which is hilarious. And then we're getting to Stargate, Kurt Russell, Roland Emmerich classic. We're traveling through it. Yep. I will talk about that one day, folks, for a donor choice, maybe. (laughs) Ben will make us do it. Is there anything else you want to say about Stargate? We already kind of talked about the Stargate. I will say some of it is pretty video filter 80s. There's some that where it's just like, this doesn't really hold up. To, but there is a lot of it that's still pretty spectacular, actually. Just the galactic kind of universe folding in on itself stuff. 
is does have that that for lack of a better term that religious feeling of of kind of right awe and grandeur and and the universe there's some pretty cool stuff in there yeah and i can imagine again i've never seen this on like a big big imax screen or anything yeah. but i'm sure it plays like gangbusters yeah i i found i was tired and stuff last last night actually when i was watching this and i was also like i don't know the Leggetti music mm-hmm. it really starts to bother me get under my skin yeah i really i really i really hate it so i what don't you like about that i, I don't know it's it's hard to put your finger on yeah <laughs> yeah it's horrible and it's just a hard sequence to watch for that reason it's and i know it's supposed to get under your skin make you uncomfortable but it's also like so god hating <laughs> yeah yeah this is your transcendence, man. Like, well, that, maybe that's why I like the Lacrimosa sequence from Tree of Life better. Even if it's kind of pop crap, sure. ultimately, it's it's got a feeling of, yay, I God's mean, creating the universe. Yeah, Terrence Malick believes in God, whatever yeah. else he believes. Yeah, he's in a personal God. So Yeah. Well, after the Stargate, we get to the part of the movie that I always found pretty creepy as a kid, especially, which is that house where dave oh yeah slowly grows older that's so weird it may be the best evocation of a dream that i've ever seen on film at least the way that i dream i feel like i've often had dreams eerie dreams of loneliness and these kind of i'm tired of this phrase but in these liminal spaces where you kind of hear something or feel something that's just out of reach uh-huh. the fact that on the soundtrack you actually hear talking or something yes. kind of just yeah, yeah, yeah. just beyond where dave is it's very yeah it's amazing i've had a lot of dreams like that right just kind of the loneliness locked into a place maybe in a dream it's like a place that i know and yet it's not a place it's supposed to be something that i know like my house but it's not really that i'll have those kinds of i've had those kinds of dreams from time to time and it's really yeah, it's creepy. I've seen a lot of people say, I don't know, what do you think is happening here on a plot level? I don't know that it matters, but... Well, I think the the aliens are doing something. They're basically... Because he's older once he gets there. Right. It's like going through that Stargate took a long time. Oh, and, and, and you, by the way, there is that one, that one shot for a few seconds of these diamond-shaped spaceships or something mm-hmm. flying along through yeah, through I the portal that. yeah and i think that that has to be the aliens like guiding guiding the progression or there with him somehow mm-hmm. I, I mean on so on a plot level i think there's some kind of higher intelligence that's put him here <coughs> and this is this weird space they made right with like french old french furniture from the 18th mm-hmm. century it's just it's just it's it's some weird space they made for him to inhabit as he heads towards transcendence. I've heard p- people describe it as a zoo, like in the same way that we might capture a creature and then try and create an environment that we think is suitable for the creature right. and then have it kind of for us to study and watch. It's like the aliens have, oh yeah, d- this Dave creature will like this kind of architecture, I get. Like this is our best guess at what might make him comfortable as he undergoes yeah. his transformation. Yeah, that's that's interesting. But it's also clearly like a compressed, somehow things are compressed and whatever happens there is going to be very compressed. Like his consciousness is not working like normal anymore. I'm never sure whether we're, what we're actually seeing is a montage of a lifetime spent there or whether he's 
aging quickly and traversing different consciousness. Like there's the weird thing of him kind of seeing each stage of himself yes, before yeah, yeah, he yeah. becomes which it. Which is amazing. Which is amazing. It's all just done with with cuts. Like there's no special effects there. But no, but it's it's also that the older stage hears the younger stage yeah. at one point. It like like realizes that the younger stage is breathing behind it, but then kind of forgets. I think it's time kind of folding in on itself. I think it's of, yeah, yeah. Some 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 something like that. Like it's like the thing that Arrival did bluntly and stupidly and annoyingly. <laughs> this is Kubrick's doing with a quick a few quick that's right brush strokes. That's of. that's that's right. That's that's what I think. And I think part of the idea of it is Dave is realizing that time is folding in on itself, but how can you realize that? Well, you can't quite realize that. You only sort of can. You're mm-hmm. like, wait, I see myself, but then wait, I am myself. But then my older self remembers that I just saw myself sitting here, but then, no, I don't remember that anymore. So, oh, and then, yeah, so I think I think it's just evoking, it's trying to push you past what you could normally show visually. It's trying to give you the the whole set of implications in order to give you an experience of that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's it's quite successful. Yeah. And it's amazing how big and transcendent and creepy it feels when there's nothing really ostensibly like if you just walked into the movie cold and saw this scene, you'd be like, oh, that's a little weird, but you wouldn't you wouldn't yeah. know that it's got some kind of galactic import to it. Yeah. yeah, and then he's gonna become a gonna meet old Monty the monolith again and <laughs> become the star child. Which is super weird. Which I guess the alien intelligence is just advancing us to the next stage of existence. Is that what's happening here? I think so. It seems like the point would be to have a whole new perspective. Like look upon the planet as a whole. But I'm not, I don't know what that means. I guess Kubrick thinks this is a positive thing. Yeah, I mean the music is certainly triumphant. But in Kubrick's idea of triumph... The music is triumphant when the monkey is smashing a skull with a bone. Right. So uh, it's like, what What does this actually mean? And I don't think Kubrick has an answer. Right. He, I don't know. Maybe he thinks he does, but he doesn't have an answer. Well, and even if whatever Dave becomes is far beyond what Dave was, there's still something that feels regressive about being infantilized, literally, like being turned into a baby even if it's a cooler baby than anything you ever were before there's still something kind of horrifying about this adult man being trapped for me at least the idea of being put in this house under study by this alien intelligence and then regressing (laughs) getting growing old laying there dying and then turning into this this baby creature that's kind of staring at the world and stunned surprise if it is supposed to be transcendently good it's it's got a lot of malevolence (laughs) sort of mixed in with it at least in the way that the film hits me i don't know what kubrick's intention is ultimately and just having this alien star thing like he could have had it appear anywhere but having it sort of look down on the whole world it's like i know you're not really supposed to ask this question it's all sort of symbolic but what happens next? Are we all becoming those creatures? Is Dave going to go back as some kind of messianic figure? Is he just one star child that 
was kind of ha- going to have a Jeff Bridges and Starman kind of experience of not <laughs> understanding the world and <laughs> what's what's happening here, man. I don't know. It's deep, man. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's weird. Last time the monolith showed up, it began the process of turning us from monkeys into men. So I guess the monolith showed up to begin the process of turning us from men into star children. Yeah. I'm sure there's some good interpretations of what Kubrick meant, but I don't know. Yeah. I feel kind of lame, like I haven't actually thought about this enough to say anything worthwhile. Well, it doesn't, I don't know that it asks you to. I don't know that you've done anything wrong in regards to Kubrick's intention. I think you're just supposed to mm. be like, huh, mind blown, man. <laughs> like Maybe so. I have always taken it to be exactly what I just said. The, the next stage of evolution is now. Yeah, upon it. It's the X-Men thing. Like the there's there's been a sudden leap forward. What that means practically for the human race, I have no idea. And I don't know that we're supposed to contemplate that too much. I don't know if the world's about to be <laughs> swallowed up by the star child or or what. But oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. <clears throat> but it isn't comforting. It's like whatever it is, it's it's a baby, the star child baby thing. It's a thing you don't understand. There's no mom. There's no dad. Right. It doesn't seem to understand itself. It's not it's not designed to look wise like like you and you could actually do that. Like Yoda is just a little puppet, but he has great wisdom in his face. Uh-huh. This this thing is made to look naive and babe. it's ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty off-putting. Yep. In its way. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben, what's your final summation of your thoughts on 2001 and its value and uh, i'll ask you to give it a star rating in a minute but Ah, i see what you did there yes (laughs) how many stars well i think it's worth seeing for sure so you can understand it's worth seeing once it's two and a half hours out of your time and it's a touchstone yeah and it's g it's not a touchstone like texas chainsaw massacre is a touchstone of a certain kind but why assault yourself but yeah, you can handle if you have any kind of maturity these ideas. I hope without being sucked in, and yeah, watch, you can watch it once, and even if it's kind of boring, you'll know something about cinema. That's right. But beyond that, do you like it or? Oh, I don't know. I mean, in some sense, I think I respect it. It's interesting. It's it sticks with you. You think about the images. You think about what it means. It gives you insight into. It gives you what it does. It helps you. I don't know. It's. It's it's pagan in a sense that you can you can watch and consider mm-hmm. without being corrupted by I think and you can kind of helps you take a step back from wait a minute what do I believe about all this stuff right I'm a Christian what do I think about technology are we just doomed or are we progressing in this kind of weird pagan way like Kubrick thinks we are or what's actually going on in the world I don't know it makes you is it lame to say it? it makes you value the book of Genesis more? It's, 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 not just, it's not just like saying, well, I ate some garbage and that made me appreciate food. That's not <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. It's a thoughtful movie. Yes, I think that's true. And I think it's, insofar it's a, as it's cold and it's intellectual and it's a little off-putting, I almost like it better for a young person, like for a 14-year-old who has all these kinds of existential things they're dealing with. Maybe give them this one before you give them Tree of Life or one of those things. Because those movies, Tree of Life, actually, whatever its merits, is much more seductive in its emotionalism and its kind of family stuff. This movie can kind of get at some of those same big questions without actually being as seductive precisely because Kubrick just has no interest in 
that kind of emotional no manipulation. So yeah, I like it. And it is a little hard to talk about it without sounding gospel coalition-y, which is always something we're very frightened to do. In the same sense that if you go in a desert, you'll understand a little something about the book of Exodus and all the wanderings in the desert a little bit more. It'll give you something. Yeah. This movie gives you some things like that. Some, I, I do appreciate these kinds of movies for the way that they dramatize the the mystery and the grandeur of the transcendent. You know, it reminds me when I read the story of the burning bush, like it's not just some little cute little story that happened, put on felt things for kids in Sunday school. It's there was something mysterious and unknowable and and yet very knowable about that. And I like that. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to talk about it without sounding gospel co initially. How many stars out of an infinite Stargate do you give to <laughs> 2001? I don't know. Quasi-infinite number. Yeah, me too. It's brilliant. It's interesting. It's worth talking about. It's worth thinking about. It's worth watching. I don't know that I'd call it entertaining exactly, even though parts of it are entertaining. It's just, it's just like, I don't know. It's like you would, you read, you read intelligent non-Christians, hopefully. Right. To understand where their, what their perspective is and to see the, how the truth and the lie are mixed together and how, and so that you can understand what you believe. Which is not the same thing as saying that you eat garbage in order to know that real food tastes good. It's not the same thing. You have to know the world around you and what it is and what paganism is and what makes paganism compelling and what makes it gross. Which, again, is not the same thing as saying is plunge into debauchery. This movie isn't debauchery to watch. It is pretty clean. I mean, its ideas are gross, but... I don't know. I feel like I'm getting myself dug into a weird hole here. Yeah, I do too. I'm not, I'm not trying to do it. It's like visiting a, well, this is an imperfect analogy because you will see a bunch of some stuff that's pure debauchery, but you could walk through a certain kind of modern art museum and understand something better of the world and of humanity mm-hmm. and be appropriately kind of disgusted by some of it, but also see some of the beauty in some of it. And this movie actually kind of has that feeling, including the kind of coldness of it is just like, yeah, right. Okay. There's, here's an artifact that I can look at and understand right. a little something. Yeah. It does also, it does make you realize like technology is really something there is, there is the positive angle on technology in this movie is there. Yeah. And it makes you want to not let the pagans just have it. Yeah. Not that we usher in the kingdom of God by technology, but we take dominion over the world and we do stuff with it that honors God. And I don't know. Yeah, this movie uh, portrays that well and it certainly portrays the dangers and the darkness of technology as used by sinful man very well. Yeah. Like you said, one of the first uses of a tool was to for a brother to kill another brother and I suppose this movie dramatizes that sort of thing about as well as any movie I could think of. Yeah. I'll tell you a person who's about as good as anyone I can think of is Bob. Bob? Yeah, our Patron Choice Award of Awesomeness winner. All right. What is it that makes Bob so special, would you say? I think that if if Bob were were an artificial intelligence guiding an important intergalactic mission, he would not go nuts and kill all the crew members. Mm-hmm. I think that he would he would just, just do his job. Right. We hope and we pray that Bob will become an artificial intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> Guard, That'd be great. Guiding a bunch of crew members because mm-hmm. we know. Bob would never go to go crazy. He'd just do his job, keep that oxygen flowing, keep those engines going. Awesome. 
Thanks, Bob. The Bob 9000 guarantee. Bob 9000 guarantee. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks, go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies and support this podcast. Get some great bonus features. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe. Until next time. I can't do that, Nathan. I hope our listeners can. What's this? I thought the podcast was done. It's actually... (laughs) It's like this podcast is interminable. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's boring. Being boring and long is part of its strategy. Monotonous, repetitive, and yet, if you pay attention, if you think about it, something great emerges. The key to all human existence, in fact. (laughs) Actually, folks, what happened is this is about a week or maybe two weeks later from when we last recorded on 2001. Everything you just heard took place in our timeline. In your timeline, I understand it's all taking place together, but (laughs) time's a funny thing, as you may have noticed. (laughs) You may have noticed. So your timeline is like like old Dave in that (laughs) house where you're just cutting from, you know, he's like walking through the house and then suddenly he's eating dinner and then he's dead. But... (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe it's... It's like Dave in that ship where every few seconds we catch a glimpse of Dave's horrified ah! face in a crevice. No, oh, it just keeps going. Oh, no. Ah! <laughs> uh, no, but for us, it's been a week or two or whatever. Yeah, that's right. But Ben has more thoughts about 2001. So uh, uh, yeah, upon just, further reflection. I, I was just thinking about some things that in hindsight struck me as rather obvious. Yeah. Well, okay. So I mentioned the critics take who was like, yeah, how represents something humans need to leave behind. Yeah. And the more I thought about that, the more I was like, yeah, that's my take on the movie. Because you have, you have that, that uh, our first introduction to the uh, Jupiter mission, I think, is, is it Dave who's on a run? He's on a run through the... Mark or whatever. Whatever. <laughs> Frank? <laughs> Frank. Frank. <laughs> he's on a run through the control room. And what is he doing? Well, he's, he's in a loop. He's in a, he's literally running in a circle in a <laughs> yeah, closed okay. loop. He is stuck. There you go. He is stuck. And and what is how but a reflection of that stuckness. Right. How is the is the limit of human technology? How right. has absorbed um how's a better chess player, you know, but he's also absorbed like lies and violence. Right. And he is, that's it. Like, how, how can I, how is a self-defeating technology? Hal actually is such good technology that he defeats, he would defeat the human race if he could. Right. Um, and he tries. Right. Um, interestingly, it's, uh, it, I mean, we talked about how Hal's a more interesting character than Dave, but Dave does come up with a, with a relatively clever way to get back in the spaceship that Hal just didn't predict. Right. Because it wasn't the kind of thing Hal had been trained to think could be done. Right. It involved a level of risk that you you don't train in. Um, he, Dave could have just been sucked back into space or he could have just gotten a concussion and died right. before closing the hatch um, when he ejects himself, you know, from from the back of his ship into into the, the open hatch. So, so Dave is able to defeat Hal um, and if you if you think about the way that that the movie works, you've you've got the ape at the start who picks up the bone and takes charge, and then you've got Doctor or you've Haywood, got Haywood Floyd, yeah, Doctor Floyd, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who um, he's the guy with the bone that you yeah. follow, um, and and he's the guy you know he's gonna he's gonna talk to everyone who's beneath him. He's gonna talk to his little daughter. 
She's just a little baby human. She doesn't really understand what things mean or how important her daddy is. She doesn't get it. She's just kind of, you know, she's a little girl. Right. And then, he, and then Dr. Floyd is going to talk to these other scientists representing a, a nation who doesn't have the bone right now. Mm-hmm. A nation or two nations, I forget how many. Yeah. What are they, Russians or something? And, but, exactly, but, yeah. but, but they don't have the bone right now. Dr. Floyd does. He has the advantage. They're going to they're gonna request clarification. They're going to want to know what's going on. He's going to be like, no, I'm not going to tell you. He's going to walk away, owing them nothing. He's going to walk into a room of other scientists Give them absolutely nothing to indicate what's going on, but just basically tell them in a very sophisticated way, I have the bone, shut your mouths. Yep. I don't care about your complaints. And they're going to be like, oh, thank you, Dr. Floyd. Right. We're just here to serve you. Um, and, and then Dr. Floyd is going to be reduced to a worshiper at the, at the, at the symbol of transcendence that is the monolith yep. as, as he realizes he ain't got nothing, yep. so to speak. And they're all reduced to just like, um, ah, you know. What, what would you even say? Almost animals by the by the shrieking signal that the monolith sends out. And so, Act Three, the Jupiter mission. Hal has the stick. Yep, he has the bone. Yep, he's the one actually. And and Dave, you know, it's 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 a matter of who's going to crush whom. Right. Hal has the Hal's trying to crush the humans. The humans try to crush Hal. The humans win, but it's still all. It's like they're all playing one game with right. each other, and it's just the same game. And it's not until you get to the to the end of the Jupiter mission, or I guess is it it's part four of the film, I suppose. Right. Jupiter and and the infinite beyond, yeah, or whatever it's, it's called. Yeah, Star <laughs> is it actually called the Stargate? No. It, mm, I can't remember. I can't yeah. remember the title yeah, that, that yeah, pops up then. But that's when you get you actually get something other. Right. And 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 you and you get it as Dave experiences, you know. The completely closed world of his final days in this maybe facility that's been constructed for him, so that he can so that he can die and finally transcend. And and when he transcends, what he is is he's he's not he, the only enclosure he has is this protective sphere around him. But he's not enclosed by the earth anymore. Right. He's not really trapped. He's in fact on par with the earth. It's like he finally has the opportunity to become, or humankind has the opportunity to become something that will be able to understand its place in the universe without being trapped by a limited understanding of technology as violence. Right. Um, it's like finally you, you can look at yourself holistically. You can look down on yourself like Nietzsche's Superman and evaluate all that you are and all that you've done without the foolish constraints. Right. That you've that you've been forced to walk through. They were a means to help you get there. They were like training wheels. Now the training wheels are off. And is that good or bad? What will that mean for humanity? Well, Kubrick does leave you feeling ambivalent about it. Actually, right. I think, and he leaves it ambiguous. But he intentionally leaves it there. Like there's something else beyond these these training wheels, which are fine in their ways and also suck in their ways. And Kubrick is aware of the ways that technology both helps us and traps us. Right. And, and and how we use it as a tool for violence. And I think, well, duh, yeah, of course he's right. right. We do do that. That's a good observation about technology. It's fine. You might not think it's worth that much by the end of the movie, but it's real. Yeah. You know. Um, so those are my thoughts about yeah. how 2001 works. So in that sense, Hal is actually the bone that Dave has to throw away before he can... Kind of. I mean... Yeah, you. Hal is almost the bone personified, and yeah, you, that's right. You could at least cast right. it that way. That's why. That's they, right. Yeah, 
Yeah. Like, like he's the pinnacle of what human technology can achieve. That's right. So, in, so, so the pinnacle that he's almost ensouled or something like that. Like that's he's, right. he's, he's almost become human. That's right. But ultimately he needs to be deactivated and that's right. Thrown away in order <laughs> yeah. to, for us to achieve the next stage. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that's right. Um, I even wondered about the flavor of like Dave and the other astronaut. They have an understanding of their place in the world. I mean, they're they're very cold right. characterizations of guys, but they're like they're high level. They understand their place. They're making sophisticated plans. They're even making trying to deal with Hal in a pretty sophisticated way. They get away from his him being able to hear them. Right. No, they make a stupid mistake and he reads their lips. But but they're they're pretty sophisticated. And you even see that in the way that. Um, Dave's parents wish him happy birthday. Yeah. It's like Dave's parents are actually trapped. They're frozen in time beneath him in a world of like, oh, well, old chum. <laughs> yeah. Have a great birthday. And your right. mother and I, you know, it's just this goofy old, old world that has no relevance to anything. But Dave is above that. Right. And I feel like that's Kubrick just being like, these people are idiots. Their world is stupid. Right. And it's it's good thing that we can go beyond that, whatever that is. Right. And then that's Kubrick's godlessness. Yeah. Kubrick just, I think, just hates good things. And his misanthropy, excuse me, misanthropy. Like he really yeah, just yeah, yeah. does not like people. Let, like the human race. That's right. He, does, he doesn't like the human race. He think most people are idiots. Right. At least Dave's not that. Right. Um, and it will take someone like Dave to even get to a place where the training wheels can get taken off. Right. And that's what Kubrick is, in fact. Kubrick is someone like Dave. Kubrick is the kind of guy who can make this movie come hell or high water, get his movie made the way he wants it made, um, even if the original story writer doesn't like it, right. Arthur C. Clarke, and uh, leave you with this, this shining artifact of glory. Use the sophisticated Hal-like system that is Hollywood. That uh, is yeah, I mean, I, maybe, maybe that's getting a little too meta, but that's how... The more I think about it, the more I think it's of a piece. And no, Kubrick, Kubrick is very wrong. proud. He is proud. I mean, even as you're, as you're talking, I'm thinking of Dave's relationship with Hal. And Dave is actually, and Frank or whatever that guy's mm-hmm. name is, <laughs> they're, they're actually always condescending to Hal in, in, in an interesting sort of a way. Yes, like like Hal right. is better. He'll beat them in chess. Like Hal is the master of everything that Hal does and he almost wins and kills he he does kill one of them he almost mm-hmm. kills the other but their relationship is the relationship of someone who's pacifying a very smart child or or mm-hmm. slightly flattering mm-hmm. someone who's too proud of himself or something like that right like, like they never actually quite treat how right like how actually in a, in a weird way seems to deserve or at least has enough sympathy as a character <laughs> yeah that, that we, we we almost want them to treat hal with a little bit more respect yeah and that's that's interesting i don't know how to, to and completely parse that tension but but definitely on the one hand you feel hal deserves it but on the other hand they're validated and not doing that with hal yeah hal did not need yeah the mistake would be to assume that hal is on a even playing field and allow him to think that he is right <sighs> That's really interesting. Well, it's a good movie. And those are yeah. more thoughts. I, I don't know. I don't really have anything else to say, but I agree. I think that's a good read. Yeah. Actually, the other thing I was thinking of, and I don't know that I have any useful hmm. thought about this, but I was thinking about how much of that plot actually tracks onto The Shining. <laughs> 
and Jack Torrance is kind of being absorbed into this larger, huh. whatever the hotel is, he, in this weird horror story kind of a way, actually ends up transcending and being absorbed into its history, into its energy, into whatever it is. And he's got all these Hal-like characters, the, the bartender and the Mr. Grady and hmm. all these people who are seducing him or something. I don't, I don't have a complete yeah. or compelling thesis statement on that right now. But there is something about that. I've seen probably most of The Shining on TV at one point or another in my life. Yeah. And uh, there is something about it that's like, this is a statement about a system of some kind. Right. What is it? This is a I, sy- I can't figure it out. But it's, it's like a system that's built to absorb Jack Nicholson. And it has all these kind of, oh, I'm sorry, sir. These kind of uh, British, very proper Hal-like creatures <laughs> that are serving it. That's actually most of the ghosts. I mean, you have the little, you can't play with us, Dan. Uh-huh. You've, you've got that variety. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got the woman in the bathtub and stuff like that. But actually, if you're going to spend some time with a ghost in that movie, it's it's like a <laughs> a butler ghost. <laughs> and Hal is nothing if not a butler ghost. So huh. uh, I have nothing profound to say about that. But those are the associations that are in my mind. Interesting. So, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, Kubrick is, I guess, a guy that's interested in systems. That's interesting. I mean, Dr. Strangelove is about, eh, we're all just the stupid minions of this system that is the Cold War, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter what we do or what we don't do. We're going to... Well, our technology has gotten away from us, and it's it's begun to create certain kinds of people. Right, exactly. And now we will suffer the consequences. Exactly. And we did not even foresee the consequences of what we were creating yeah, when it's we like created this tech. Uh, George C. Scott's character and uh, the crazy guy that rides the bomb and Dr. Strangelove mm-hmm. himself, they would not exist except for that this world has given birth mm-hmm. to these psychopathic <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> people. And then Pads of Glory is about a, a uncaring army system that executes these men for not following orders perfectly, even though their intentions were good. Um, and without getting into clockwork orange it's the same sort of you know dystopian society creates Mm -hmm. this sort of person and then attempts to change this sort of person and And barry linden i would say is more of a movie about individual individual pride yeah yeah i mean i mean even that kubrick is very fascinated with the kind of society that could allow such a person to exist but it's more it's more like it's about a parasite that's all yeah just about a parasite inside society yeah i would love to watch that movie again i think i was too young for it i was probably too young for kubrick's entire oeuvre when i first watched it but yeah i'd like to watch barry linden again i'm sure jake would love to watch barry linden with us i think barry linden is really really interesting and funny i mean it's got some couple of scenes you should fast forward or whatever but yeah you just have to it's one of those things you have to know how to watch it you have to get into the spirit of it because you might be mistaken or you might be uh forgiven for not thinking it's funny just simply because it looks like it's not funny (laughs) (laughs) it's It's actually pretty funny but it is yeah you you have to take a step back and vibe on kubrick's wavelength uh okay well speaking of vibing on wavelengths let's vibe on the wavelength of goodbye Goodbye. Bye, listener.